Hey, I'm Steve. And I'm Blake. And you're listening to Action, the movie podcast. everybody to episode four of action the movie podcast you know we love that name it's very wonderful it's a uh it's a movie podcast where me and steve each time we sit down rather to talk about this we surprise one another with a movie and then we do not speak about it at all until we record next and we record about the movie that way all of our opinions and Everything we say is off the cuff, off the top of our head, so that we have our opinions doesn't don't influence the other one's opinions. And so everything's kind of straight and narrow and as honest and truthful as we can make it. Yep. So I got to pick this week's episode. And uh I was drawn to it mostly because of the director. I'm a I say I'm a big fan of the director, but then once I kind of started going through his filmography, I realized that I hadn't seen much of his work. <laughs> and frankly, like I've seen bits and pieces of it, but one of my favorite movies of all time is a movie he made. I absolutely love uh, The Fly. David Cronenberg, I love The Fly. But uh, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about David Cronenberg's Videodrome. And... uh I'm just, you know, that's what kind of drew me to the movie. Uh, what drew you to the movie, Steve? Um, hmm. Well, because you told me to watch it, Blake. Our movies, uh, like I said, it's Videodrome. came out in 1983, if I'm not mistaken. I believe 1983. That's correct. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they uh, actually, speaking of that, they had kind of a, a hard uh, filming schedule for this actually when I looked it up because uh, the movie is Canadian. It's it was filmed in Toronto, Canada. And so because of that, they actually got government assistance. Well, like I think almost the entire movie budget came from the government, but when they were doing that, he was actually working on the script. He had pitched it and you kind of wasn't expecting them to say yes, but they said yes. And once they said yes to the movie, they had to the end of that year to get the movie shot or the money would stop. And so when they were, when they got the money and they were told to go ahead with it, it was uh, early October. It was early October and they had till the end of, they had till new year's uh, Eve to get the whole, the whole thing filmed. So they had mm-hmm. three months to shoot this thing. Otherwise they had no money. And I thought that was, pretty intense especially for david cronenberg who had pitched the idea but the script wasn't done right <laughs> and so he was kind of i would say he, he sounded cool and nonchalant like in a lot of the commentaries and stuff behind the scenes can, sorry can i ask where is this in his filmography is he a new director at this point oh, this he's been is directing for a long time early really yeah i'd say first 10 probably first five really because some of his uh, earlier words yeah I have a bunch of stuff wrote down, but um, I didn't write exactly where this ended up in his filmography. But prior to this, he had done a couple of big ones. Uh, Rabid, 
the brood and scanners. Yeah, I mean, this was coming right off of scanners, and scanners had made him a pretty big name. In fact, big enough of a name to be offered a direct return of the Jedi. And he actually turned that down. Other people that were offered for, to that, to direct that, Spielberg, Paul Verhaven. Um, uh, I mean, so that was a, you know, a huge thing for him to turn that down, that opportunity to, I, to direct I, this. I do remember reading that he turned it down because he wanted to make his own thing. And he, he felt he, he had never directed something he didn't write. So exactly. Yeah. And he, and he didn't want, and, and with how big star Wars was, there's going to be so many people with their fingers in that pie. And he was just right. like, nah, he literally turned that down and then did this movie that I think that was the same year. Wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. To answer your question, Drew, I mean, he, he hadn't directed really anything big. Scanners was the biggest thing he directed at that point. He, he directed some smaller, um, like thrillers and things like that. And uh, like rabbit and the brood was one of his main ones. And then the scanners. So uh, he's actually, pretty, pretty new to the game. It's actually a cool thing. I read when I was going through his filmography, like he's done a lot of like, not just horror. He's done some really good, like dramas and like, like two of his, two of the bigger ones that people may not know is a uh, history of violence and Eastern promises starring mm-hmm. Viggo Mortensen. Mm-hmm. And I've seen bits and pieces of history of violence. And that's a fantastic movie. And I did not know. I seen it before I became as obsessed with about directors and stuff as I am now. So I really want to go back and rewatch both of those Eastern yeah. promises and history of violence. But- both of those movies, Eastern promises has one of the most raw gritty fight scenes of all time. It's a, a shower, uh, a, a fight scene in like a Turkish shower, mm-hmm. uh, Viggo Mortensen and another guy completely naked. Just it's, I mean, it's just as gritty as it gets. And, uh, Vigo went all out for that man. It's it's you need to watch that scene. It's I mean I don't know how he didn't get hurt filming that thing. I'm sure he, he probably he did. had bruises all over him. But I mean it's it, it, it was amazing. And then the same thing with History of Violence. Just the the way Cronenberg does his violence. And I mean some of the things in Videodrome too. I guess we'll get into some of the effects and like the the gunshot wounds to the head. And he kind of does that blood squirt and, and all of them. It's just so cool and realistic looking. I think he some of those, like, like I said, those are action, but they're more drama pieces, frankly. It's oh, about yeah. character. They're very character driven. And but that still allows him to kind of dip back into his roots and deal out some of that ultra violence, that that body right. horror, that body modification that he was mm-hmm. known for. One uh, real cool thing I was actually looking into the first film he ever made was a, a 63 minute film that he says was the best he could do with what he had and it was called uh, crimes of the future. He made it in 1970. I found out that starting in 2022, oddly enough, the main, the lead of, uh, of the movie will be Viggo Mortensen. So there they are, they have a, an ongoing professional relationship, but they're going to, he's going to, he's going to rewrite and redo crimes of the future the way he wanted to now. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. His very first movie he ever made, he's going to redo it. It's supposed to start filming 2022. According to Vigo, he talked about it in an interview. So I'm like, Vigo's making the movie. Vigo's going to, he's going to be the main character. He's going to be starring in it, okay. but Cronenberg is writing and directing and producing. Right. So he's so- coming. I feel bad because I feel like so David Cronenberg's still alive. Oh yeah, yeah, much so. Okay, I didn't know he was. He's, he's older. Yeah, I he's like I in sixties, maybe seventies. Considering the age of some of his movies you're, you're talking about, I thought I was like, surely this guy died a long time ago. No, he's still alive and kicking. Oh, yeah. You know, he's yeah. sharp. He 
I mean, because some of the, some of those interviews in the uh, commentaries on the DVD. What's, what's his most recent movie? Um, like you, well, like Blake said, Crimes of the Future is filming right now, and that before that, Maps to the Stars, um, which again, totally, completely different than any of these other movies. Just a character uh, piece. Cosmopology, Cosmo. Well, that was 2012. And Cosmopolis. Then, yeah, Cosmopolis. That was 2012, and the Maps of the Stars was 2014. So he hasn't made a movie in seven or eight years. I don't think he really needs to at this point, because everything, especially at this point, <clears throat> everything, almost all of his, especially older movies, are like cult classics. And I'm sure people rent out movie theaters, or they people, I'm sure people teach classes on some of these movies. I just off the you know the, the style of filming versus no the, the practical effects and everything that he uses, for sure. I just thought that was super dope about the uh, the crimes of, of the future thing. I thought that was really cool that he's getting to redo it. Like not many people get to do that. Mm-hmm. Get to redo what they you know with all the knowledge they've acquired. You know, if I only knew what I knew now, he gets to do that with the movie. So it's pretty. And so, well, some people also don't look back. He's mentioned that. When he makes a movie, he rarely goes back and watches it ever. Just because he's like, man, because he, he's like, I'm too in my head. I'll see stuff and be like, why'd I shoot it that, that way? That's any kind of creator. Yeah. So, yeah. One, one thing that I, I saw, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, on one of the making of that James uh, Woods was talking about him. And he said, Cronenberg uh, only writes from his nightmares. Did you see that? Yes. I thought that was pretty cool. He he never writes during the day. He only writes at night. He only writes from his nightmares. And he's like, you can clearly see that in the, in the effects and the, just the ideas. And um, it, his movies do. I mean, that's just, it was like hit it on the head. His movies truly seem like a nightmare, you know, poured onto the screen and created into a movie. Cause it's just like, they talked about the, just the realism, not realism, but how, he doesn't try to use camera trickery. He gives it to you. He's not like, ooh, because he even talks about that. And, and the commentary that I, I listened to was on the Criterion Collection version. And so some of these recordings for the commentary was in like, I think it was in 2004 or 2005. And the movie came out in 1983. So he's had plenty of time to think on it mm-hmm. and give his commentaries about it and everything. It's a lot of time difference between the two. And he still talks about He's like, why do people got to be so fancy with their camera angles and their camera work and their trickery? He's like, just film the damn scene. It's not that yeah. complicated. We were watching, uh, sorry, we, me and Jessica, she was watching um, 28 weeks later. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If, are you familiar with that movie, Steve? Yeah, the days sequel to so 28 Days better, Later. But yeah, yeah uh-huh. well, the sequel, yeah. and I was, sitting, I was watching it, kind of watching it with it while I was kind of in and I was doing something else I was doing. Anyway. About you talk about a busy camera. That was the I don't know who the director is, but it's funny you talk about that. And that movie right there, I'm like, I was like, why is this? Why is this camera just all over the place and jumping and zooming and backing and turning? And like it was like, and what even action scenes for some of it? It was just like this incredibly busy camera. I was like, are you going for a style? Are you a new director? You don't know what's going on. Like I just that kind of stuff can be can be bad. There's a difference between I feel like there's a difference between that and we talked about before. Um, like Neville Dean and Taylor, there's a difference. So like, there's a reasoning and stuff like that behind theirs. There's other part. I don't know. I don't know the director. Twenty eight weeks later, but it was just, it was real messy and jarring. Even when, even when it was just calm scenes, it was like, oh, mm-hmm. relax, you know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, sometimes a... that stuff works. Sometimes it doesn't, and um, it's just. I mean, st- I don't know. It 
it just depends, but I, I agree. It's a, uh, especially with that movie, it, it definitely didn't, but you know, Danny Boyle who directed the first one 28 days later, he kind of has that style, but he doesn't overdo it, you know, and uh, obviously that's what separates somebody like him from the guy that directed the sequel. But it almost sounds like they were trying to copy his style. So people right, thought it was the exactly. same is what it almost feels like because yeah. I, I remember it's been a long time but i do really remember enjoying 28 days later and i do still get upset when people say oh yeah 28 days later such a great zombie movie it's not a zombie movie it's an outbreak movie and people have become rabid they're not zombies there's a difference right but and i'm not going to get into that right now <laughs> And when we were talking about it earlier, I mean, it's it's that fine line between getting self-indulgent where you do something to convey a scene and to make it hit home and make it uh, resonate with your audience um, and not even really with your audience, but just to be true to the story and make you understand that feeling is so. like Danny Boyle, for example. I mean, like we're talking about him and that uh, uh, the, the James uh, uh, Franco what is it? I always forget the 128 days or 124 oh, hours or 124 hours. hours. I always forget yeah. the name of that. But uh, when he cuts his arm off and he cuts into that that uh, tendon, that nerve, and he hits that nerve. I don't know if you guys have seen that movie, but um, the camera work that Danny Boyle did on that, I truly felt like I was cutting a nerve in my arm the way he did that. So because it was just kind of like shaking. But yes, it, it was exactly. And so again, I mean there's a time and a place for that stuff, but then you can, then they cross that line between getting self-indulgent where the director's like, you know, look, it's almost like he's just saying, look what I can do. Look what I can do. But, but yeah, I mean, again, it's just, there's time and place for it. But before we kind of dive into the movie, we've been kind of chit-chatting about all around. Um, I want, I I really only only want to talk about the main two actors because everyone else did a good job, but I really just want to talk about the main two. And so the, the, the starring role, the, uh, the main attraction for the mo- uh, movie is uh, James Woods. He plays the character Max Wren. And now both characters, actually, uh, I thought this was pretty funny because uh, during the commentaries, uh, James Woods' character is Max Wren. And the other uh, actress, Debbie Harry, her character is Nikki Brand. And he goes, you know, my names aren't great. I'm not that creative. So sue me. So mm-hmm. Max, Max Wren is literally just a swap of the Wren Max. At that point in time, uh, David Cronenberg's favorite German motorcycle was literally called the Wren Max. And that was mm-hmm. it. He just swapped the names and he's like, that's my character. Let's go with it. And now the character, uh, Nikki Brand, uh, as the movie progresses, we'll get into it in a second, but you find out she's sort of, um, not sort of, she is masochistic. And she, you know, <laughs> at certain points in the movie, you see where she has, she's literally nicked herself with the razor blade on her collarbone and she brands herself with a cigarette. And he goes, yeah, that's her name because she nicks herself and she gets branded. Her name's Nikki Brand. So sue me. <laughs> His literally words were like, I'm not that creative with names. So sue me. And I was like, well, okay. that's you, you, you say that, but then at the same time, in my opinion, that's the definition of being creative, you know? <laughs> He's just like, eh. That's their names. <laughs> I so, mean, yeah, I mean, it, I, 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 if, if he's not being creative, their name would be, you know, Joe, Joe Thomas or something like that. Or, oh, yeah. But I mean, John Everyman. And yeah, uh, especially with Nikki Brand, I mean, that's uber creative, in my opinion. 
Oh yeah, bravo yeah. to him. That's he awesome. got a lot of uh, flack for it. He said later on in life, people were like, "Well, your names are so stupid," and he's like, "Whatever," because <laughs> he 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 don't care. He he really doesn't care. Actually, like even when he was making this movie, like the young him was talking like, "What are they going to do? Fire me? It's my movie. <laughs> right. I don't care." I, I actually really enjoyed listening to him talk about the movie behind the scenes. But, yeah. Yeah. Real quick. Uh, so it's James Woods. For those who don't know who James Woods is, he's been around for a very long time, like 1960 something, I think is where you got to start 1961-64. And his first kind of real big break uh, came in uh, 1978 when he was in a, a mini, an American miniseries called Holocaust where his wife in the movie was a uh, Meryl Streep. And they actually, I think they won an Emmy for that or they got nominated for it. And it got him a lot of acclaim and everything. So, cause he'd been acting for a minute, but that movie was boom, which is really weird. Cause it was such a dramatic role. And James Woods is a very comedic actor, which I'll talk about a few scenes in this, that he was allowed to just kind of cut free. And some of my, uh, like you can, you know, feel free to jump in on some of your favorite roles, but probably one of my, my big, big favorite is uh, he was in, was it 1997 in the Disney's Hercules? He was Hades. <laughs> and in every rendition of that, all the Kingdom Hearts offshoot games, main games, he's reprised the role as Hades every single time. And he just, I, he's just so funny and sarcastic. He's really, really good. And all this uh, voice work that he does. Yeah. he w- One of my favorites uh, with him will always be uh, uh, Cat's Eye. Have you ever seen that? Oh, yeah. With because um, he that's the, the one he has to climb around the, the building, right? No, that's the guy. That's Robert Hayes from Airplane. He's he's oh. in that one. James Woods is the in the uh, the part where uh, he has to quit smoking. Oh, and they, his mom or his wife or something. In the, yeah. OK. I knew yeah, you were talking about. Do you that's that one of the through? first things that I, I remember. I mean, obviously, other than uh, Stephen King's Cat's drum. Eye. Yeah. It's like, the, oh, you know, it, it, it's got that weird sequence with the dream troll and the cat, and Drew Barrymore is like a six year old. It's a weird movie, but it was good. Yeah. You, you, if Drew, Drew, if you haven't seen that, you need to watch that, man. It's, I think, I think it's a classic. Watched it. We watched it. I own the DVD, I own a still book of it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> me, and, me and Jessica watched. What was, what's that movie that, uh, where the mom and the son are having sex all the time. Steve. Psycho? No. Oh, he wants to have sex with his mom and Psycho. Yeah. It's not the Lingalier. What is that? Tommyknockers? No. Tommy oh, no, 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 Tommy no, no, no. Not Tommyknockers. It's uh, the cat people. It's uh, Nightwalkers. Oh, oh. Even King's Nightwalkers, Nightwalkers, I think. I was like, yeah. I think Sleepwalk, Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers. Yeah. We watched that a little while back, and I was like, oh, man, this is, I don't know if I'm enjoying this or not. It had the dude from the dude from us, um, Leo from Leo. Charmed. From Charmed, yeah, as a kid, a younger. It has Machinomic in it, so I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Cat's Eye is the one that always jumps to mind. And then there's a movie called uh, Best Seller. I don't know if you ever seen that with Brian Dennehy. Mm-mm. I always liked that movie. Um, and obviously, I mean, you got to go with uh, his Academy Award nomination with in, in the, uh, God, what year was that? Let's see here. Which movie are you talking about? The Meg Grevers movie. Um, Come on, buddy. Yeah, he, I believe in you. <laughs> he played uh, Ghost of Mississippi. Sorry, I, I knew it was Ghost of Ghost of Mississippi. You guys seen that? Mm-mm. He played Byron Della Beckwith. It was that Meg Grevers, the murder of Meg Grevers, but it was in 1996. 
he was outstanding in that. For, that for was me, a tough year, man, for um, Oscars. It's like every actor that was nominated for supporting actor that year could have could have had a case to win, and and unfortunately, that was the year James Woods got nominated. And then I'll I'll, I'll mention one other one, Casino. Always liked liked his role in that, that little slimy guy that uh, was getting swarmy, with uh, Sharon Stone's character. Yeah, but go ahead. Well, I'm sorry, Blake. Yeah, well, I was gonna say for me, uh, James Woods is uh 1998's uh, James Carpenter's Vampires. He yeah. plays Jack Crow, <laughs> the leader of these vampire hunters, and that's just a it's a weird like almost comedy vampire hunting movie. It's a weird one. I love it. I love John Carpenter's Vampires. Absolutely that's one of those cool. movies when it came out, I didn't like it, but now I've seen it more and more, and I do like it a lot more. It is good. Yeah, and I uh, he had a, some show called Shark where he was like a PI. Oh yeah, I, I forgot about Shark. It went That's like right. two seasons, like forty episodes. Something other things like Showtime HBO, and he has one of the funnier parts, like in the opening scenes of uh, Scary Movie Two. He plays the the pastor. Oh yeah, he's trying yeah. to perform the Exorcist. And he's uh-huh. just comedy after comedy after comedy in that scene. He's great, and then of course. Family Guy. He plays a major role in Family Guy. Well, he has like 10, 8 or 10 episodes, but the fact that there's a high school, James Woods High School, named after him and a bunch of other stuff, because he's a, a he is, a, you know, born in Rhode Island, so they're paying kind of homage to him being that, and then apparently he liked it and got on the show and he's had some fantastically wonderful scenes. Mm-hmm. But he's had when, a great career, there's no doubt about it. One cool thing I didn't know, Drew, uh, this may not be more for Steve, but this is more, more for you and me. Mm. He plays, he voice his voice work. He voices the main bad guy. I think his name is General Gaius, General Kane Gaius or something. But in Final Fantasy Spirits Within, he's the voice of the main bad guy. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't, he probably wouldn't erase that from his IMDb, though. I, I don't know. I mean, Spirits Within is not an awful movie. It's not a Final <laughs> Fantasy movie, it's but not it's a, not an it's awful not a, movie. I, mean, I like it, but it's not a well-regarded movie at all. Mm. Now I'm about to, you know, I gushed all over James Woods. Now I'm about to do not a lot of gushing on Debbie. Well, Harry. I, before you move on to her, I will say that uh, just just thinking about James Woods cast in this movie, just the tone of the movie, the weirdness of it. And, you know, James Woods just has that look about him. Um, you know, he's not a particularly handsome man. He's not ugly, but he's just, you know, he just has that look and he just fit this movie so perfectly you know just it just the kind of the uncomfortableness that you get right from the very first scene of this movie and then you see james woods and it just fits i mean i honestly can't imagine anybody else you know playing this role yeah i don't like because he's got what's the room looking for um he's not intimidating like he looks like like a normal person he's not this ripped adonis who's like oh yeah people don't like me and I'm weird. Like, you know, he's not, he's, he's just James Woods, just an ag, I don't say average, but he's just a normal looking fella. He, you know, I'm not, I was like, okay, I could see being friends with this guy or I could, I could see this guy. I, I just felt normal, mm-hmm. which is how the movie's supposed to start. And then as it goes, he, he was a he, great, great thing. Uh, yeah. Thing, great actor. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I know, I know what you're saying. <laughs> And now we're going to move on to the the co-star, the the co-star, which is she has a lot of screen time, you know, pun intended. And so this is Debbie Harry. She is the uh, the 
lead vocalist front man for the band Blondie. And that's really all I know. Cause when I looked through her IMDb, I didn't know a single one of those movies. <laughs> uh, so I don't want to, I can't talk about something. I don't know anything about. Do you know? Well, the thing about Debbie Harry is, I mean, and that's just exactly how she was. Uh, she wasn't the best actress by any means, you know, she just kind of everything she did. She just kind of had that stone face, you know, and it was almost like she just tried to be creepy. She had that creepy tone to her all the time. And, but again, for this movie, she was perfect for it. Um, but uh, really the only other thing to, to be honest that, that I'm really have seen and know of her in was uh, a movie that uh, I, I might've maybe even seen it more times. I've seen this movie, but it's called Tales from the dark side of the movie. It's another horror anthology. Yeah. She's, I'm aware uh, of it, but she plays the, and you know, all the anthologies, they usually have a wraparound story, you know, like as they come in and out of each of the stories, there's a, a story that's going from beginning to end and she's in the wraparound story for that test from the dark side of the movie. But, um, but yeah, I mean, she, like you said, I mean, she, uh, she wasn't the biggest actress. She's obviously mainly known for Blondie and this and, um, but you know, she's done small things, you know, here and there, but, but yeah, so she, again, this, she's just perfect in my opinion, her, Cronenberg is a genius all around. I mean, he knew exactly what he wanted to play these characters, and I think he nailed it with uh, with the casting of both of them. Yeah, because he, uh, I do remember, in, uh, you may have heard it too in some of the commentaries, he talks about when they when they got uh, Debbie Harry, they were kind of excited, but then when he sat down with her, he was like, oh no, she can't act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And he was like, she has a great stage persona. She can do that. But when it comes to filming a scene, she wants to do it to the camera. That's not how we do movies. And he was just like, he's like, the first day was really rough. He's like, I, he's like, I was blunt with her. I told her exactly what she was doing wrong, what she needed to write, because it, it's different. And she took it and she was like, okay, thank you for teaching me. Okay. And then she progressively got better over that week. And then by the end of it, they said, you know, he'd walk in the room. He's like, Debbie, I need you to do this. And she's like, gotcha. And, you know, boom, she was knocking out of the park. Yeah, she but was a good, I heard the same stuff. She was a good sport on set. And I mean, that's all you can ask for from an actress and to oh, yeah. take direction, you know, and she obviously did that. And again, she, Cronenberg's just a flat out genius. So he, he knows how to get the performance from the people and he's done it, you know, time and time again. And she was, like I said, the fact that she was very aware, aware of her limitations just goes all the more, you know, I respect her that she wasn't like, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm doing. She wasn't being a diva. She was like, okay, I honestly don't know what I'm doing. What do we got? You've been making, you know, this is, I think his sixth or seventh movie and they've all been fairly successful. So let's do this. And I got James Woods as a co-star. Let's knock this out the park. Right. All right. So. There's not, I mean, there's a lot to dig in here, but there's also not a lot to dig in here. So um, the movie itself really doesn't start about halfway through the movie, frankly, because it's just kind of a buildup of madness. And then the madness happens, and then the movie goes bonkers, and then the movie's done. <laughs> and Cronenberg even said himself, uh, he, I, he's like, I can't tell you what it's about. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's, well, because he, oh, he said that. Yeah, he said he's like, I can't tell you what it's. I'm about. glad it wasn't just me. Well, because he, like, like I said, like when they got the funding and everything, he didn't have the script done, and he was like, Oh no, 
Oh, I hey, do ex- we need to do our disclaimer? Are we good on that? Oh, yeah, before we, yes. Sorry about it. Yeah, thank you, you Steve. You, 1980, 80, 83 movie? Yeah, yeah you go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But some people, some people haven't seen it yet. We, 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 I'll watch it for the first time. Yeah, I, I've seen bits and pieces, but in I mean, its entirety, sat down and watched it. Can you spoil the plot of Videodrome? <laughs> <laughs> this, uh, starting now, uh, official spoiler warning. We're not going to hold back. And if you hadn't seen the movie yet, that you shouldn't be listening to this. You should pause, go watch the movie and come back. And, you know, that way you can enjoy it with us. So we open up on a, uh, a panning view of, uh, what is that, New York City, Toronto? <laughs> it's like Toronto or whatever. But Yeah, it is. Basically, it narrows down to uh, Max Wren, James Woods' character, runs a... It's not, a, it's not a public access channel. It's just a really, really small... UHF television station. What's UHF? Uh, what does UHF stand for? You never see that Weird Al Yankovic movie, UHF, where uh-uh. he owns the UHF station? No. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I think it was VHF and UHF. Whenever, back in the day, you this might be too old for you guys, but you had, like, the two settings on the TV, VHF or UHF, and VHF, or I think I think it was VHF, were, like, the big channels, like NBC or ABC or CBS, and then you had UHF, and it was, like, these, like, kind of local broadcast. You know, early on, we had the little knobby and the rabbit ears. That's all. We, we didn't have a UHF or VHF thing. Right. Yeah, so UHF, uh, ultra-high frequency is what it stands for, but... Um, but anyways, that's to answer your question. So Toronto UHF station is what he he's the CEO of it. And so this they they're just kind of they're small studio and they're literally just running everything that they can find to find an audience to keep from being shut down. What's the company called? It's a Chival uh, C- Civic TV. Civic Civic TV, yeah. Civic TV. And so they literally run everything from the softcore porn all the way up to ultra-violent, like, what, executions, I think, or shootings. They don't really talk about, they just say ultra-violent right. activity. Right. And so, he, you know, he kind of, like, we'll go through the beats, and it kind of, the, the movie, we'll, we'll say, kind of picks up, well, when he meets, he goes down to Harlan, his uh, pirate, quote-unquote, pirate guy, who's searching the uh, vastness of <laughs> the airwaves, I like that Harlan character, but he was a little weird. Like, even for the movie was a little weird. Kept calling him a patron. I'm like, dude, you're <laughs> right. the whitest dude I've ever seen in my life. He takes a bite out of that paper. Yeah. <laughs> but during this scene where we're introduced to Harlan, which is his, uh, it's his pirate buddy who's going around finding all these weird rogue airwaves. And he's the one who's giving him these part of his his programming these weird signals and they find this and they go and they find the people who's putting out these air with you know these to transmissions and they you know ask for permission and whatnot and put it on the air to try to get ratings but during this opening it's only like a 15 second clip but you get introduced to videodrome mm-hmm. which appears to be a live recording well, you know, it, it, they think it's actors. We, we're, you, you know, they're like, we're not sure what this is, but it's, it's a small room with a clay wall that is wet clay and may or may not be electrified, and right. it's just people being, that, yeah. being hit with whips, and in fifteen seconds and done. And James and Max Wren, James Woods, is immediately hooked, and wants to figure out more about this. 
he thinks it's being broadcast out of Malaysia. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's like a tricky signal. We think it's coming from Malaysia. And then there's a whole, there's a quite a bit of comedy in that scene of them. He's like, dude, if you're going to be a pirate and have all these, don't leave signs in the hallway directing people to your headquarters, man. And he throws a sign in that literally says this way to the video piracy room. <laughs> and he's like, and that's when you say, that's when he starts eating the sign. Buccaneers. And, <laughs> and then that kind of. Is that the guy that always literally said things and. Yeah, he was like, hey, patron. But he yeah, was like. He was clearly not Mexican or Spanish in any kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Very tall, lanky, white dude. I think it was supposed to be a joke. Yeah, it's just his character. I don't really know. But then yeah, again, kinda... I mean, just that perfect tone to a Cronenberg character. He just he, he he played it perfectly. I mean, you just you just get that icky feeling, you know, from pretty much every single character. That yeah. uh, I don't know how. I mean, he's just again. I, I'll say it over and over throughout this podcast. But Cronenberg's a genius at this type of thing. And so from here, we kind of I'm shooting through this kind of quick. I'm trying to get to like the good meat part, because then from here, it kind of dovetails into an interview. One of these uh, local news, like I'm not sure. I think it was a late night show where you have Max Friend, James Woods, character and the uh, an alternate TV radio personality who has a, you know the opposing views of what he does and then we get introduced to a third character a uh, what was his name Brian Oblivion Brian Oblivion yeah and he media was, theorist yeah he was uh what was that Harry McLaren but he was based off a of real guy what was that real guy's name who would do all those like he would never meet people in real life he only interacted via the television yeah um Max Hedrum or what now no, Max Hedrum. That's a <laughs> no. It's a real guy that um, that he even says he that uh, David Cronenberg even says that Oblivion is based off of. I think hmm. the gentleman's name was like Harry McLaren. I don't. Henry I Mc- didn't see that. I don't know. I'll uh, take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, because he's a, he was a real live person who interacted with people like that. He only interacted people with people through television screens and stuff like that. And he was he wasn't a televangelist, but he was a. Uh, a pseudo techno prophet, I guess he would call these things that were going to happen. And they kind of did happen. He gathered a bunch of followers. And so now we get here and we're introduced officially to Nikki brand who they are immediately semi disgusted and attracted to one another instantly, right. like instantly. And it's funny because the interviewer is having a whole conversation with this gentleman over the television, the Brian Oblivion, and just Max Ren and uh, Nikki Brander. I'm talking hardcore flirting, making eyes at one another. And the whole time she's talking, he is up and down in her entire body in this, you know, gorgeous red dress that she's wearing. And he cracks a Freudian joke. He's like, you know what Freud would say about that red dress? And she goes, oh, yeah, I do. And he would mm-hmm. be right. <laughs> She's all coy and funny, you know. And then well, lo and behold, <laughs> that night they're banging. Well, and, and before I want to make <laughs> make note of one thing before we go to that part. Um, during that interview, like you said, uh, uh, Nikki and uh, and Max are flirting that whole time doing that, and she and then the the ladies interviewing uh, Oblivion the whole time. One thing he says there in that interview, I love it. Um, where he kind of makes that prediction 
of he says one day we will all have special names like screen names oh yeah and, you know i mean just think about you know twitter and every, you know everything now you you have to have a username or um a screen name everybody hides behind these things in like social media anonymity and um but that's awesome i mean 1983 and he's he's saying that you know it's just it's so cool um and at least to me I, I just loved that because now everybody does you know they have that handle their twitter handle or or whatever and um he he he's straight up said that he says one day we will all have special names yeah, what's his face? David Cronenberg, he denies it. He was like, I don't know what people talk about me being prophetic was. He's like, I was just writing weird stuff. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, like he said, I don't know what some of this stuff means. I was just writing it because it made it fit this character. And he was like, I will never call myself a prophet of video. He's like, it's just happens to be that something that was a problem and that people talked about then is even worse now. He's, he's like, I think it's just natural evolution but they're, you know, they call me a prophet of the media. He's like, I'm not, I just wrote it. Yeah. But yeah, he completely denies any, anything like that. He's like, I had no forethought. I was just making a movie, man. But some people want like, Oh, I, I knew this was coming. Some people try to be a little high and I'm hoity toity with it. That's another reason. Like he just calls people on their shit. He's like, I don't know, man. I don't ever call me a prophet. Don't ever call me prophetic. It's funny you talk about that. Cause you talk about how, the movie seems to like people get pulled so much in the movie that the movie has so many messages. The movie has so many meanings. And in the you said David Cronenberg's like, I don't know what it's about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's like, I was just writing it, man. Yeah. He's like, people pull, put so much stuff into that. Like I was watching, I was like, is this about TV's bad or is TV, is this movie, is this movie about TV obsession? Like I'm, I'm kind of, and then like watch the whole thing and you get to the, I don't want to jump ahead for uh, y'all, but you get to the end, you're just like, did we did I did I miss something? <laughs> well, one thing I mean, he Cronenberg he's he does say that he says I can't I can't even really tell you what it's all what it's about, but he does say that if he were to say one thing, he would say it's about somebody pushing something to the ultimate limits until it just changes everything. Like they're just constantly pushing something, you know, and and then and then just completely changes the spectrum of what it is and. And again, I mean, you look at these, the guys behind, you know, I, I guess we're going to get more into the story, but the guys behind this whole thing and um, the, the po- political part of it. And, um, but, but again, just trying to completely change something and, and it just kind of, you know, no matter what you, you try to change something and do this or that, and it just backfires on you. Just like one of my favorite lines of all time in Jurassic Park, where Jeff Goldblum says, life finds a way and he's just he's just arguing with john you know about creating that park he's like the dinosaurs died for a reason you can't do this you, you're gonna you know when you push something to the limits everything changes so i think that's what cronenberg was kind of getting at with this that is pretty pretty accurate i are, did so are all his no, I, I i'm not too adept in all his movies are all his movies is he like this with all his movies? Like he just writes movies or is like video drum, like, like a, a weird special case where he was, it was just more crazy than anything else. I think it was a weird, crazy headspace type situation. So it's all, I mean, I've seen the fly. I know the fly makes sense as, fly, much as, a, and as much as a fly movie can make sense. It like, there's a plot to the fly movie and it goes, you know, from beginning to middle. I mean, it, it, it's, it he, he has through. some crazy movies. I mean, people argue that um, the one he made in 1999 existence, I've heard. I mean, I remember when that came out, and that was just a complete head trip. People that's, couldn't. That's not, about like all those kids, right? All those teens and doing. 
I mean, you guys might like it. It's a, um, I mean, the synopsis for it, a game designer on the run from assassins must play her latest virtual reality creation with the marketing training to determine if the game has been damaged, but it's just like, you don't know what's real and what's not, but um, you guys might want to check that one out. But then you look at scanners, scanners is pretty solidly built. I mean, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the weird premise, psychic powers given to you by, you know, you're like military trained psychic powers type situation. But I mean, that's, you know, through and through a pretty decent one. The brood, well, the brood's kind of weird, but not. Same thing with the fly. The fly is out there, but it's coherent. I was just wondering if he had a reputation. Like some directors have a, have a reputation. Like you, you watch Cronenberg, it ain't going to make sense. It's, no, his no, no, not okay. at all. And like we talked about earlier, especially like his newer stuff, History of Violence and Eastern Promises. Um, you know, one of the, the, the one of the ones he's most known for, one of maybe his most critically acclaimed movie ever, Dead Ringers, um, where Jeremy Irons should have won the Oscar for that. He was completely robbed and they basically gave it to him for reversal of fortune a couple of years later. It was like a, a makeup Oscar, but Dead Ringers, uh, if you guys haven't seen that, that movie is just amazing about those twin brothers. But uh, yeah, I mean, the majority of his stuff is pretty straightforward. I mean, the Dead Zone, you know. Yeah, he uh, did do the Dead Zone movie, mm-hmm. which Stephen King's Dead Zone. Mm-hmm. Wait, that was Keith. No, who was that? Keith? No. No, I'm thinking of the, the TV show Dead Zone. They had uh, Anthony Michael Hall was right. the main character. That's what I'm thinking of. I forget who the guy played in the actual movie they did. Uh, Christopher Walken. Oh, it was Christopher Walken? Mm-hmm. Cheese and crackers. Yep. Anyway, crackers. One of our known tangents we just got off on. So back to the story. It's fine. (laughs) Yeah. So they ended up all this mega flirtation ends up them just, I'm talking hot and heavy immediately that night. They're just like, no holds barred. Let's do this thing. And so now we kind of get to the slight stepping into. Because Nikki Brent's character is, in fact, she is a masochist. As I spoke earlier, is uh, you know when you when you see her in this scene, she's got a couple of slight nicks on her collarbone that she had given herself earlier, and he asks. She about asks him. him to get his Swiss Army knife out. Oh yeah, <laughs> she's like, you can cut me a little bit if you want. I'm okay with it. He's like, and it looks like somebody's already been there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I do want to talk about that. Is James Wood, like I said earlier, is a very comedic actor. Like eighty percent of his stuff was ad libbed, which made it really hard for Cronenberg to write. But he was like, he was just making the character more the character than than I could ever write because he was embodying the character. He was doing these things and just all this fun stuff, which is like that particular looks like somebody's already been there. (laughs) And I have a couple of scenes I want to talk about later that he obviously did some comedic stuff in it that wasn't in the script, but it made the scene just more memorable. But so she being, you know, um, a masochist that she is, she's like, what do you got going on? Wait, she's going through all these like pirate tapes. And he was like, I don't know. And she picks up one that happens to be, you know, it's taken a couple of days later, but it's a full broadcast since they were looking for it. But it's a full broadcast video drum. And so she's like, oh, what is this? And he's like, oh, and it's kind of hardcore. You may not be into it. She's like, hardcore. Okay. And so <laughs> you literally, I think it's, I forget if they, you know, whichever scene, it's either the dude or a girl. You literally see someone just be beat with a bullwhip and electrocuted. And that's just the thing. That's just the mm-hmm. whole, you know, and she gets all hot and bothered by it. And they end up 
sensually piercing her ears <laughs> and then bow chicka bow wowing. Now he talked about this. I want to get into this briefly. Well, probably quite a bit actually, but he talks about censorship. David Cronenberg does not believe in censorship or the MPAA in any way, shape or form, which I think a lot of directors and stuff don't because he, he thinks he's censorship is stupid. He says it's absurd and incredibly personal. He's like, what offends this person doesn't offend this person. What someone finds disgusting doesn't put person. It's just dumb. But this scene specifically, this is the first time he really went on a rant about it in the commentary where they're making love, they're having edit. But then Max Ren happens to look up and see that video drum is still playing on the TV and he gets back to kiss her and the camera zooms in on them. And then it backs out slowly from them as the camera backs out from them it shows that they've been transported to the Videodrome room. But it's all kind of like, you know, it's a hallucination. It's in Max's head. And it's like a first step towards the madness, the awakening of the, I don't want to say demon, the awakening of his, um, you know, his darker desires, not even mm -hmm. darker, but his desires. Right. And then it cuts away. But Cronenberg says that they, they cut that completely. In the MPA, it was exact because because he, he explained why the scene was in there. Because you see them going at it, and then you, you they show the the video drum scene, and then it pans out, and they're in the video drum room. But it pans out; it's a long pan backwards, mm -hmm. and the, the the leader of the MPA meeting, they're like, "We didn't notice it, so the so no one else is going to notice it. Cut it." They assume that they're all. It's just a bunch of random people. But they assumed that because they didn't notice it, because they were too concerned about how long he focused on this very light petting of a sex scene, quite frankly. But well, the, like, the, the thing that I saw with that sex scene was how he had his leg like mm -hmm. right in between her legs, like pushed up. Yeah. And there, like there was only and he talks about it in that commentary. They could only have so many seconds of that. Um, yeah, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And and. He was just like, it was like, cause he went on a big run. He's like, it's just so dumb. He's like, see, he, cause he even do, does this. He's like one thing he hates more than anything, especially in the early days before like PETA got involved with movies. He's like, nothing I hate more than watching a movie. And in order to get a response out of the audience, it turns immediately to violence towards an animal, but it's a real animal, you know, like they, they murder a snake, which I think we saw that happen in, uh, uh, one of the recent Jason, not recent, but one of the Jason movies you and I watched off camera where they killed the snake legitimately. Yeah. Like a, I think that was a real snake. I think, yeah, I think it was too. It was an appropriate time. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And he says, he's like, I get it. But he's, and he, he goes on to say, he's like, there's nothing that shouldn't be allowed to be filmed for a movie as long as it is in the context of the movie. Don't show me blatant animal violence just to get a reaction out of me. That's not the right reaction. It's a, it's a, it's a reaction, but it's not the right kind of reaction. And he, he went on a, you know, a big rant about that, which I, I agree with, like just doing violence for the sake of violence. Again, mm -hmm. So is right. video drum has no message, but he talks like that. So is video drum about not having censorship. It might be. Cause he, I guess he was just writing what he was feeling at the time, but he does. Not, and he goes on. There's several, things where he just he's like it is just pointless mm -hmm. and then uh, you ever seen that movie this movie is not yet rated that documentary yeah. about the mpaa mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's bonkers, but we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole another time. But just NBA, NBA sucks. They're stupid. And and I get it. Censorship, They're definitely not consistent. <laughs> no. And I get it. Like Censorship could be important, like, but if a movie, if you know a movie is going to be about something bad, like again, for example, like if you make a movie, uh, like it that's you know based off John Wayne killing children, don't if if you don't watch that movie, don't oh, that movie should be cut. Just close your eyes and pretend it doesn't. It's not that hard to ignore problems and ignore MPA, things. MPA like, like it exists to take the responsibility away from away from parents. Yeah, it's literally uh, the MPA takes. The, no parents, I got parents are so lazy they can't figure out what their kids are watching. Just look, look at this number on, look at this letter on here. I ain't gonna do no work. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I think it is. I just, yeah, I'm I'm with them on the MPA, but you know that's actually a. Uh, sorry, just I'm kind I agree 100 with the MPA. It sucks, Dawn. But so they have this pretty nice sensual moment, and they you know they they're having a a, a growing relationship, and then probably. Another cool, you get introduced to a, another character, the uh, the madam. I forget her name, uh, Madam Sunny uh, Masha. Masha, yeah, the Masha. And she's like, well, like Eastern European. She's an older lady, and she's trying to sell him this softcore porn. And he was like, it's too soft. <laughs> I need something a little more edgy to get my viewers watching. But he does uh, hire her to help track down the actual video drone signal and if she does that he says he'll put her show on the air and she'll get a commissioner's fee this her character is one of the in my opinion one of the keys to the movie i kind of talk about this week in and week out but creating that that world and creating your rules inside of that mm-hmm. cronenberg keeps it ultra simple i mean i know obviously that that sounds crazy ultra simple when we're talking about video drone, but in the in the cons, you know, constraints of the story, he makes it really simple with using this one scene with her where, you know, James Woods obviously respects her. We see that she's, you know, like a certifiable expert in her field. She's known to be able to track these things down and he trusts her, but she simply gets that information, you know, completely off screen comes back to him with that information and gives it to him again, what you're getting ready to say with the, the whole tracking it down to the Brian oblivion yeah. um, and everything. But, but she gets this information, gives it to him. That's all we need. You know what I'm saying? It's that simple. We were introduced to her. We respect her. We completely understand that she could get this information and give it to him. So from that point, like you said, we're off. I also think it's kind of funny because she is, which you find out, uh, but based off, she's trying to sell him a softcore porn. And then the second time we meet her, once she has actually found the idea, the, the source code, I guess, the source uh, transmission for the Videodrome. And I want to talk about this scene here in just a second. Because during that same scene, she kind of shows how kind of promiscuous she is. But she also seems to be the most innocent person in the movie, <laughs> right. which is awful strange. You, you get what I'm saying? Like, she was an, an, an innocent, in my opinion. For someone, you know, she was just an older, flirty gal and promiscuous in her older age. But she for me, I think was the, the most innocent in the entire movie. I would say the most innocent in the movie is his assistant. Oh yeah, that is true. That, that, yeah. that girl. Uh-huh. Uh, Bridie. Yeah. Played by Julie Kaner. She was fun. Yeah. Uh, but during the scene, cause we talked, we've talked about 
busy camera work and people just moving and sliding and shooting. And the, uh, the DOP, the director of photography for this film, who was also his director of photography for everything he's done to this point, uh, to that point, he'd done scan. He, they'd just done scanners together. And so he was talking about this and he called what he kept calling it the MTV era, the busy camera work era. Yeah. Cause this is a scene that they shot in Toronto in a Greek restaurant in Toronto on the balcony. And they only shot it on the balcony because they liked the view. That's literally what they said. Like, Oh, we could have shot it downstairs, but up here we had this cool little fa- uh, like grass area in the background. We liked how it looked on film. So we just, we shot it upstairs instead of downstairs. That, that was it just cause it looked pretty. Hmm. But when they were doing this, uh, it's literally a, it's a five minute scene. Maybe even longer. I think I think it's a good solid five minute scene, and it is just one camera on the both of them, and occasionally it cuts to a close up of his face, a cut you know cl- cut up close up to her yeah, face. They're, they're having a conversation. Yeah, yeah. But it's no wacky. Uh, oh, you know, cool. Like pan the camera. Let's do some outside shots of the building. It was just them two back and forth with the camera. It's and like, the, well, he knows when to be cray cray and when to keep it yeah tame. Yep. But like, and they said they they even talked about the comedy. Like, you know how hard it is to do that in movies nowadays. People can't sit still. People have to pointlessly be walking back and forth in the living room. They can't just sit on a couch. He's like, not only that. He's like, if they are, they're they're smoking or they got a drink or they're going through the. They're not just sitting like right, in, like in the movie or you mean like people watching movies like in the movie. Okay. He's talking about in the movie, people have to be constantly doing something. This movie, like, yeah, he's smoking a cigarette and he has a cup of coffee, but he's, it's them. It's not wackadoo and him pacing back and forth. It's just him gesturing with his hand occasionally. But for the most part, because the, the conversation they're having is kind of private and they're in a, they're keeping it quiet and they're yeah. keeping a one-on-one conversation. No one else is involved in this. And it was just a really well, Really, really well shot scene. I liked. I actually thought it's funny that scene of, <laughs> in this movie. I mean, well, I agree. It was, yeah, it was good. But you don't think anybody would pick this particular scene to pull out of their Ooh, it, heads. Yeah, it's not my, my uh, favorite by any in, means. But in this a, movie, it's know? a it's a truly you know really good scene because it's you know you do you're doing all this and then we finally start to kind of I think shortly after this is where we start to really dive into the madness because at this point in time, Debbie Harry's character has gone off on a, uh, uh, what's her name? Nikki brand. I forget why she says she's going doing something for work. She tells James Wood she's doing a work trip to Pittsburgh. And obviously the reason she's doing that is because they find out that that's where video drums being filmed. Yeah. After that scene, he, they find out that the source is not, in Malaysia, where they thought it's actually coming out of a building in Pittsburgh. Did y'all mention earlier that I forget? Have has somebody already told James Woods' character that the video drum stuff isn't actors? Has not that, yet. Has that, okay, that, that happens during this during that scene with Masha. Masha so she tells right. she tells him it's not the reason it's so so raw is that it's not actors. She actually says a, a pretty fantastic line that uh, it's just kind of funny. She's like. They're dangerous, Max, because they have something you don't have, and it makes them dangerous. He's like, what do they have that I don't have? And she's like, they have a philosophy. And you're just kind of like, oh, man, that hits. Because he's just a guy. He's frantic. He's just scrambling, trying to grab whatever he can to 
and keep his channel alive. keep his channel alive. And these and she's like, these people have a philosophy. Yeah, they're not. They're not just doing it to get viewers. They're just they're doing this and they're getting people to do this willingly. Type situation. It's yeah. I mean, the, basically, the two main things that he gets out of that meeting with her is a, like you said, Drew, that that footage is not faked, and then b, or I mean, a a one and a two or whatever that 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 this is literally like the public face of a political movement. So. Yeah, very much so. And then, and obviously that that Oblivion knows about it. Oh yeah, she's like, oh, yeah, he's like the he's like the supporter or something. They kind of talk about it, and then this goes into a, a Nikki Brand scene where she she gets her her last name, where she brands herself with a cigarette, and then tells him after they've had a you know naked fun time that she's going to go to Pittsburgh to audition for Videodrome. And then, you know, she goes on, does her thing. And then we now start to see him slowly devolving into madness because for some reason he buys a gun and now owns a gun for some reason. It just shows up. And they, they talk about that in the commentary too. It like that gun literally just shows up. Yeah, there's no, he doesn't order it. He doesn't, it just, the next scene, he's just unzipping it and unfolding it. And it leads to, to a, again, uh, one of his, one of his comedic ad libs is he's like admiring in this gun and trying to be like, oh, look how cool this is. And he goes to flip it over and the magazine shoots out of the gun. He's like, oh, what? And he's, and he tries, like, he has no idea how to work a gun. Obviously, right. why, why does this man own a gun? And then he gets a, gets a knock on the door and he freaks out. He's like, Oh no, uh, I'm not supposed to have this gun. So he like folds everything up, <laughs> sticks the gun back in there, looks around and then sits a newspaper on top of the gun. <laughs> to try to, and he looks at it and he pats it, gives it a thumbs up and walks over to the door. Like it's going to hide it. Uh-huh. It was just like, okay, that's that, that James gun, uh, James gun, James Woods comedy mm-hmm. just coming out. And then we get, his uh, his innocent. This is actually another pretty cool moment that I absolutely loved. Is that he gets his assistant, who uh, she she doesn't leave him voicemail. She leaves him video recordings of her telling him about his day's agenda for the next day, which I thought right. was super which is basically weird. how the movie opens up. Yeah, I thought that was super. I've never heard of anyone leaving a video message for. I guess she just re-records it over every day for him or something. He brings it to work. And so once that happens, because, you know, he freaks out and he's like, and she's like, are you okay? He's like, oh yeah, I'm fine. He's, you know, he's real <laughs> jittery and he's just trying to get her to go and leave him alone. Cause he's trying to do his thing. But this part was pretty cool. Cause she's talking to him and then he freaks out, grabs him by the arm and then pimp smack. I'm talking comes from the hip. He unleashes that samurai sword pimp slaps the hell out of her, but it's a great camera work because it's instant. It's not, it's not, uh-huh. you know, well, I liked it. We talked, I talked about it after we watched the movie uh, that in a modern movie, that particular scene, though there would have been some, you would, there would have been some cut, there would have been some light. There would have been something that made, that made you think it was a dream sequence, but the way he films that scene, it's just part of the regular scene and the way it's acted is he like he hits her and she doesn't react to, like she gets hit and she just comes back and she just keeps uh-huh. talking like it never happened 
I like the way it's filmed because there's no little dream cut there. And he's like, I'm sorry for hitting you and whatever, whatever he says. And she's like, what, what are you talking you about? You know? Me. Yeah. But, but I think you, you don't know what I'm talking about. There's like, yeah. there, there's no dream. Yeah. There's no flash of light. You know how any yeah. modern movie, there'd be like a shimmer or you would know it was a dream. There's none of that. Or there. some like, you know, like, like it, I was watching, I was like, what the heck? And she just caught it. I love that. Probably one of my favorite parts. Yeah. That, that, that little 15 seconds of movie. Mm-hmm. Was like that was one of the cooler things I've ever I seen anybody do in a movie like recently. Yeah, because not only does he slap her, is when he he done it thirty years ago. Yeah, not only does <laughs> right. when, he, when he uncorks that from the hip, he you know, bitch slap is when he slaps her. She turns into Debbie Harry's character in her red dress. Yeah, and then he slaps her again, and she's back to his assistant. Right, and then yeah, that's yeah, when he that's he's like, "I'm say. sorry for hitting you." Yeah, but the the reason he did that again. I don't have a message in this movie. I don't know what I'm talking about. He, he obviously did, but what his excuse was, he's like, it was, he's like, it's a hallucination. It's the first real hallucination of this character for the first time in the Is movie. That the first one. It's the first one that he experiences himself. And he goes, he to doesn't say, acknowledge like he, he doesn't acknowledge that to her though. No, he, no, no, no. He, right. Right. But he I, tells her, I just, I just woke up and she, you know, she's like, you're acting weird. And he said, I just woke up, blah, blah, blah. But, but yeah, like you said, though, that's the first of his hallucinations, obviously caused by uh watching video drum. But this is Cronenberg's ex- example was with hallucinations. They are real for the person experiencing them. Because he talks about there being a, a book he read, and that's kind of what inspired some of this stuff. Is the book starts out as a third person perspective, but then he says literally about three quarters of the way through, it just changed to first person because the character had snapped, and you no longer knew what he was going to do from an outsider's perspective. He didn't even know what he was going to do, so it goes third person, third person, and then snapped into first person for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. and that's how he felt this movie was is you spin you see kind of like from other angles and seeing but as we get further into the movie you because he starts hallucinating and again you're not sure if they're real or not but you only have from his point of view you don't have someone some outsider looking in going what are you doing why are you talking to that plant or why are you doing that so you're not even sure for what's real because he's not sure what's real and what's fake anymore. I didn't, I didn't think right. about, you, you don't ever see anybody looking at him hallucinating the entire movie, do you? Mm-mm. And sometimes oh. the hallucination you think is hallucination turns out to be real. I like didn't you, even realize you don't ever see somebody else looking at him while he hallucinates. Because even when he puts the helmet on, I'm seeing you probably get to, he puts the helmet on, that guy leaves. Mm-hmm. Huh. Now this, now we're officially at like the, like from this point on, the movie gets real and we start diving into the special effects of the movie. Yeah. Because now he gets, uh, he's got the gun and he's watching more video drone. He's obsessed with it now. Mm-hmm. And he's just like scratching his belly with the gun. <laughs> and then just out of nowhere, he gets that, uh, that stomach slit. tape slit. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, Ooh, what is this? Like, and it's, it's graphic looking. It's, it's gross and it's mm-hmm. slimy and it's breathing. And it's, you know, who yeah, good 80s practical effects. Oh, yeah. And so for some Ray reason, Baker, he starts, man. yeah, I, I want to talk about him here. And once well, now that we're getting to the special effects, I do want to talk yeah. about him and his and, team. And that, that tape slit, uh, we should mention it was too small for VHS. So they had to use Betamax <laughs> yeah. in there. That is that is the key is thing. That, is that an accident? No, no. It's uh, when they had everything made. Like, it could fit both, but they're like. 
because uh, they because they, they wanted to see you know what would work better and the reason they chose Betamax was because it was a like a quarter of an inch smaller and it had an easier time going in and out of the uh, right. the stomach slit <laughs> and so they're like so Betamax great. wins this war baby that's <laughs> literally the only reason they chose to use Betamax because it was smaller is easier to to fit inside the stomach well, they literally stuffed it inside the stomach slit yeah. Yeah. fantastic yeah so yeah get into your effects man i know you get into those yeah so like i said rick baker and for those who don't know who rick baker is just know he is a star when it comes to practical effects when i mean star before he did this movie literally the movie he did right before this he won an uh, i think it was an academy award for special effects in american werewolf in london he's responsible for that he literally just won that and then did this movie right after. That's just the very next movie he did. So the practical, you know, just ba- the practical effects were phenomenal and they were 80s and real and just beautiful. Now, he did talk about in this in this first scene where he gets the stomach slit and he's messing with it with the gun. He sticks his gun inside and he's like, what is happening here? Why am I? Because he thinks he's hallucinating, which he he might be. But then the very next scene, when he pulls his hand out, he wakes up and he doesn't have the gun. <laughs> the gun is gone. It's not in the holster. It's not in the couch cushions. It's just gone. His stomach slits healed up. So we're not sure where that <laughs> gun there. went. But so these I, I'm talking about because that the stomach slit, they use that quite a bit. And uh, there's a, a joke or two I want to get to on that here in a second one, because they do that stomach slit scene a couple of times as the movie progresses to make more and more frequently. Right. But then it gets to, I guess, his second real big hallucination because Debbie Harry is gone. He hasn't no one's heard from her. From Nikki Brand's character, and Nikki a while. Brand's character basically left after but, that scene. Yeah, but there is no gone. investigation. Like again, from a streak of his point of view, he's not asking, "Hey, where's Nikki?" He's not going to her job. He's not going to police. He's just he thinks that she's gone, or he knows that she's gone, and where she's gone to, and that she ain't ever going to come back. And so he gets this dream sequence, which is where the next big practical effect comes in, where. His TV that was playing video drone while he was sleeping comes alive, but it comes alive with Nikki Brand beckoning him to come to her and to be with her and to be with the TV. And the TV literally comes alive. It becomes uh, vascular and it's breathing and certain things are uh, pulsating and fluctuating. Rick Baker, I will say he is a perfectionist. Because this scene, they said they went through five televisions, not because anything was wrong with them, because the frame size, because it didn't match up. That's literally they had four sides that they had to put vinyl and layers and nerve endings and veins. And when it was done, if Rick Baker walked around and be like, hey, this vein goes this way, but it doesn't connect to the back on this way. Scrap it. Start again. Mm-hmm. Like, even though you probably would never see that in the movie yeah, like you, you you don't see you don't even see the tv from all four sides the most you see is the front side that has the the, the actual the top, screen on top where he's rubbing it yeah there. but you never see the back and it's too dark for them to see the sides but they literally scrapped the i think they're on their fifth tv before he said okay we'll use this one because everything lined up and matched it perfectly which i'm like <laughs> that's a little self-indulgent 
but I mean, he is the, the best for a reason. He is mm-hmm. the best for a reason. And one cool thing is they had each one of them was going to independently operate like a puppet, like a puppeteer and make the, this TV breathe and move and undulate in its own way. And then just one guy, not even one of his practice, his special effects team. I think he was the sound guy. And he was like, why don't you guys just hook it up to a keyboard? Mm-hmm. And they're like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, he's like, you can take all those air hoses. I can plug it into the back of a keyboard and you can play through like, like an air or like an organ, but it would be air pu- pumping through and you ain't got to have 15 people. You could have one guy working it. And Rick Baker, again, being, he was like, I'm a master at this. He's like, show me, show me what you're talking about. And he's like, okay, I'll be back in an hour. He went to the local pawn shop, bought the cheapest keyboard he could find, dismantled it, and in 20 minutes built this array of keyboards with attached to air valves that he could play, and it would make it fluctuate. And they found out that instead of just hitting keys randomly, it was better because it made it seem more alive to play an actual song. Mm. And the one that worked best was uh, called Takata Fugen in G (laughs) minor. And to the point, that's the actual anytime the TV is undulating, the background score is that song playing as an homage to the guy who was playing it on the keyboard. I would have never known that. I mean, either till the commentaries. Mm -hmm. But once it once it happened, I was like, that's the song. Oh, my God. That's awesome. They they literally have the song. It's called. Yeah. They have the song playing while he's while it's only when the TV's there. And I just think I was like, that's really cool. And the fact they paid homage to the guy. Who came up with it, like because he was an accomplished keyboardist he knew the song and he was like what song is this he's like oh it's this and they're like play it out and they just kept making him try different songs to figure out which one was the most natural and that ended up being the one and they i could go on about this amazing tv because then they do <laughs> what he goes into the television itself the by using dam. yeah exactly by using a dental dam they use the dental dam and then reverse projected uh, the Debbie Harry scene where she's just, just a close-up of like her mouth and she's saying, come to me, come to me, be with me. And he's like, but it's a malleable thing. It's not like a green screen. He's having to pretend it's a, it's a foam, right. not foam rubber. It's a plastic. It's a dental dam. Yeah. And they blow it up. They inflate it with the air can. Oh, it's weird. They inflated it with an air. Can- I'd be afraid to stick my face near that, but right. they inflated it with an air cannon and it's, he sticks his face into it and engulfs his head and he's, manipulate like it's a real it's real and it's there and it's it's an awesome scene you can't look away from it no one thing i was wondering is you know we talked about earlier uh that mask where he puts that mask on and he he uh so they can read his dreams or whatever yeah you know james woods didn't do that cronenberg put that on and that's cronenberg yeah because james woods was too scared to do it i was wondering during just like you said about the dental dam and the air compressor i wonder like i would have been too scared to do that i wonder if james woods actually did that part but uh, they don't go into depth on it but cronenberg says that uh james woods was going through a paranoid phase he kept saying that they're gonna stop us they're out to get us and so he never like there's a we, uh, we can kind of fast forward a little bit 
Yeah, I, I was gonna say just on these effects, I, yeah. I would it would have been so fun just to be on that set and oh with god, Brick Baker and these other dudes, they were like you know twenty, literally twenty year old dudes, and like you said, most of the crew came. There was the same crew that was on American Werewolf, just to hang out with these guys and watch yeah. their brains work. And um, god, that would have been so fun. I mean, I, a... I bet they were just having the time of their lives back then because there were no rule. You know, they were creating it as they none of this stuff had ever been done before. They were literally creating it. There's at least there's three other special effects I want to get into. Two of them are literally one of them is like the last one in the movie. Another one is really close to the end. And the other one is near like where the beginning of the end starts, where he gets the uh, he starts with the new flash. But we'll kind of like I said, the story of this, it, there's it's hard to talk about this story, frankly. I'm not going to I'm not going to lie. I'm not, I because I, I've watched I, I enjoyed it much more the second time. But because the first time I was just thrown, I was like, what am I watching? Mm-hmm. But watching it the second time, I definitely enjoyed it much more on the second time just so I could catch some of these things. And that's why, I mean, what you just now said is the definition of why it was a box office bomb. It The budget was like 5.9 million. It only made like 2.9, but it's become it was a bad. cult classic. Oh, yeah. Because the more you watch it and the more you think about it and talk about it, the better it is. I mean, what you just said is literally the definition of a cult classic. I'm going to kind of hop, skip a little bit through the story just because some of it's kind of boring. Well, is, well, is there any particular story beats that you want to hit on, Steve? Instead of like jumping through like yeah. that? Yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, uh, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's just, uh, the. I guess the main thing that to, to keep in mind is just the whole um underlying tone of what the um the oblivion character and and how kind of he was taken over you know and and basically this whole thing was his idea but they used it to to turn it against him and and killed him and his daughter bianca um the part she plays in it and um so i mean i guess just keeping in mind you know that part of it but that i mean that's the that's the whole you know kind of big story part of it that that we might be skipping over but other than that no yeah, speaking of that, I actually had that part wrote down. I wanted to talk about this uh, Brian Oblivion, who we've kind of barely t- touched on. He ends up being a huge part of the movie. Is uh, It gets kind of, you know, James Woods, when he finds out, and he's kind of freaking out a little bit, but he finds out that Oblivion is hugely responsible for a lot of the, uh, the Videodrome frequency of the waves coming out. He goes to this uh, mission, cathode ray mission, where he's literally homeless people are trading food to get a shot of television (laughs) they literally get to sit in these sequestered semi cubicles and just watch a piece of television on repeat it it was kind of weird but i'm like oh that's a that's weird but like they they needed a hit they needed that cathode they needed that tv hit it's so fantastic but then this we get introduced to bianca oblivion who plays a pretty big role as the as you find out here in a little bit but I, the scene, it was so subtle, but it was just so kind of in character where she she's, you know, said hello to the masses and she's going to go sequester herself in her father's study. And James Wood introduces himself immediately. And she has this rope unhooked, you know, that says staff only, you know, people behind this point, but staff. 
And so she's holding it in her hand and he's talking to her and he shakes her hand. He's like, let me get that for you. He takes the rope out of her hand, takes a step forward and then hooks it behind him where he has now put himself behind the rope. But it seems so natural that like she'd even notice or tell him, hey, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. You know, he was just it was real subtle, but it was real subtly forceful, like just uh, again, for the character, he was so forceful in his uh, demeanor, demeanor and willingness to figure out what was going on. But he did it in a nice, it was such a weird, but do you know what I'm talking about, Steve? Like how mm-hmm. he did yeah. that scene? Mm-hmm. You know, then there's a whole thing. That, that subtlety was meant, was on purpose? No, yeah, it was just so well done. It had to have yeah. been on purpose. Yeah. Because he hasn't gone banana nuts crazy yet. Yeah, I mean, I just, just that and then the whole, uh, obviously the Barry You, you can talk about this. The, yeah, you, you seem to really like the Brian Oblivion character. You can dive into this all you want right here. Well, I mean, this this is where it gets, you know, pretty convoluted and, and it's just kind of <laughs> really out there with uh, how all this kind of ties together in these characters and uh, Barry Convex and the Spectacular Optical Corporation um, where they have that eyeglass company kind of fronting all of this and um, but that character, he, I, convex it, or uh, ob- yeah, oblivion. convex is he not the definition of slimy? I mean, just the, oh again, yeah, He's perfect actor to play him. But we find out, you know, again, I'm not going to get too into all that. But uh, anybody, everybody that watches, it's probably going to get you know their own little thing out of it. But um, just the the way that uh, basically all this is a front and um, this whole political thing where they're trying to take take this and change it almost reminds me of have you guys ever seen the um, the Roddy Piper they live you know mo- John bits, Carpenter yeah, movie about, yeah. so the, it, this the whole thing kind of reminds he- me of that like it, in my opinion if I want to make it easy for somebody to understand it's almost like that like they're just this big broadcast thing and they're trying to brainwash everybody into living and being a certain way just like we said earlier where you they push something to the limit and it changes everything but behind this whole thing is are these people but it almost and, and am I getting this right it almost seems like Bianca had more brain you know control than they did because uh they send uh Max to kill her but she completely turns it on him you know and um, tells him to go kill them. So then he leaves and goes and kills Barry. And we find out that uh, Harlan was working with Barry the whole time, that he was basically a plant there to, to introduce Max, you know, to Videodrome. But again, I mean, that in part. Well, gets... well, what about the whole, uh, the Oblivion, her, you know, her Oblivion makes all these videos of him talking to people but he's like been dead for a while he's been dead for a couple of years like four years i think but he has videos addressing people by name yeah she explains it it reminded me of that just like this computer thing just like we're saying things that were recorded or whatever but i guess yeah she she like compiling i I don't know she takes the existing videos and then she just re-edits them she takes the video and then edits them onto a new video then uses it for because she's just she's continuing her father's work yeah they said in the year before his death they recorded tens of thousands of videos is what they say yeah and that's the basis of his television appearances and on the second and third like as you watch that movie over and you watch that interview where max is introduced to uh to nikki brand you know the very first one Right. You and you can kind of see that, like the, the pauses and the hesitations whenever the interviewer asks Oblivion question, you know, how it yeah. kind of. Uh, it, it, so you think she's 
wherever she's at picking the tape to play the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. She's picking the tape or she's editing on the fly. I don't know how they don't really explain it. It's going to leave it up to you. But she does say that she takes all the video and she edits them. And it's crazy. Gives them up to, yeah. Absolutely crazy. That's a yeah. lot of stuff to continue the lie that her, her dad's still alive. Because we find out the reason he is dead is he kills himself. He when he he is killed because he finds out that Videodrome is inducing. Which is on a. Isn't he killed on a video? He's killed on a video. That's is, is, that, is that hallucination? That's a real. It's a it's a real thing, because he is killed because he turns out that the video drone is inducing tumors in people's brains. Anyone who watches it, it starts giving you a tumor, which leads to visions and hallucinations, mm-hmm. and eventually death. And uh, he he uh, he says he's like I would I'm going going to go out my way. So he is his last thing is being a contestant on video drum where they strangle him after latching him to a chair while he's recording <laughs> it's a pretty brutal scene because he's talking the whole time and they're just choking the ever-loving shit out <laughs> right. of him with that garrote or whatever you want to call it but this this is the the most in my opinion you know kind of complex part of the movie and there are just so many it's like who's controlling who type thing and i don't know about you but where it almost seemed like Bianca seemed like she was the most powerful because does she not tell Max, you know, he's supposed to do one thing and she completely, he goes there to kill her, you know, and she says, I can't remember the line she says to him, but she completely turns it around on him and he leaves and then goes and kills Harlan and Convex. Yeah. Cause which again, we can move in from that scene. We can move into more special effects, which the John Carpenter's the thing. I don't know uh, about you, but those effects were exactly like the effects in the thing, and I just loved it. I was saying that part where he's, um, where she's, he's going back and forth on who he's killing. Mm-hmm. It's almost seemed like his character had lost all free will at that point. Like he like, he, then he like kind of like almost entirely stopped talking and stopped really talking to anybody. He's just going places and killing people, and then she talks. He like changes i guess she changes his mind but he's well, like, she tells he him she he says like he has he has no free will or something she well, has that line she says you're an assassin now you're your video drums assassin or whatever so so he's under, under i complete think control. so again because this is a little convoluted but we'll back up a little bit to the very convex thing we uh, when we first get introduced and uh he puts this helmet on he records his hallucinations and then the next time we see Barry Convex, uh, Barry Convex, he's like, this is where we get more of the, the stomach slit situation where they're literally feeding uh, beta tapes into him. And apparently those are orders he has to obey. It's almost like he's not even human. He's like a machine, a biological machine. And they show, when they shove this these tapes in, into him. So, that, oh, sorry, that goes back on the we don't see outside folks don't see his hallucinations so that's so the them feeding him tapes is not a hallucination i guess not or maybe he it maybe it is but i mean they're still forcing like they're brainwashing but this is his way his mind's way of coping with but, it but they have the weird pulsing beta max i'm not even they, gonna begin to lie i don't i don't know because we said point. earlier you know we talked about how nobody else sees his hallucinations it's just him yeah and then when, now we get to the other part now that i'm thinking about the other part where they're clearly they have these weird goop you know these pulsing betamax tapes and they're they're shoving them in him you know it's yeah. not like they're handing him a, a regular tape and the tape changes like don't they hand gross ta- don't they put yeah, gross tapes into him? tapes to him so yeah. they're are they are they 
Well, they're putting it into, into his stomach slit. So they're seeing this, aren't they? The one thing I will <laughs> say is, unless this is a hallucination too, but when he when he kills uh, Harlan, when Harlan puts his fist in the, into Max's stomach and Max has learned to control it at this point where he basically clenches his stomach yeah. muscles around Harlan's That's fist great. and then – and then obviously does whatever inside of there and grinds his hand off. I mean, if, if that's, I mean, that whole thing, is that a hallucination? Does that really happen to Harlan? But so I think it really has. Yeah. I think it happens because it explodes and, Oh, when we jump past the scene, I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Cause that, I mean, that does happen where they even Cronenberg made a crack about it in the commentary. He's like <laughs> hand grenade. Cause they literally <laughs> stuck a world war one, the prop they used was a World War One hand grenade where his hand was. And then when he backs up freaking out, he explodes. Mm. And he's like, and he, David Cronenberg chuckles. He's like, see what I did there? His hand was a hand grenade. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're so stupid. Yeah. And it was, it, it was a genius filmmaker. Yeah. He's just, it's, it's, <laughs> you, but uh, yeah, I think it means it's weird that some of the stuff happens and doesn't happen. Yeah. Because again, prior to that, you think are hallucinations. I want to, rewind just a little bit because i want to talk about this scene and then a favorite comedic moment that happens shortly after this scene hmm. is once he starts being brain controlled by convex convex yeah yeah and so uh he gives him his first orders and his first orders are to go back to his his office building his, his tv station and kill the two other uh showrunners but you know when he kicks down the door he's talking to these guys pulls out a gun and they're like what is happening when did he get the gun back by the way okay but so he starts he unloads on these dudes just pop 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 and just start shooting them with this gun and everyone starts freaking out and his assistant runs in he goes i don't know some crazy guy was just in here and they're like well let's get you out of here real quick and he's just so obviously hiding the gun like no one see this well, he's acting like he's hurt, like he was shot, you know, and that yeah. his, his assistant saying to him, let me see, let me see, let me see. But he has his arm tucked in there. Yeah. So, and so they I, find- I never thought about that. That's a good way to play something off. You know, if you yeah. kill somebody, act like you're one of the victims. But you're not sure because because you're not sure if that's hallucination or real, but that turns out to be 100 percent real. Yeah, because later on they talk about ooh, madman on the loose from shooting so and so. We are suspect this; these aren't like that really happened. But you aren't sure because of the increase, the increasing amount of hallucinations he's having. And that's what I'm talking about because he's ordered to do these things by the people behind video drum. But then they also tell him to go kill Bianca. But whenever he goes to do that, she does some Jedi mind trick stuff on him and turns mm-hmm. it around and makes mm-hmm. him go, you know, back to them and kill them. So well, I think she. Jedi mind tricks him, but like she lets him know, like you're being controlled. These aren't your own thoughts. And wh- why do they want to kill her? Because she works for Bron. Uh, she's keeping Bron Oblivion alive, and I think right. it's something to do with the message that he's putting out. Is ha- literally is hampering their message. Okay. Is their their signal? His. It's something like it's something to do with the cathode the cathode tube mission and all the transmissions he puts out. It's it, like interacts and messes up their signal, makes it weaker. Well, and the main part of her Jedi mind trick is, I mean, I guess we obviously should mention this is she shows him the video of Nikki being murdered by them. Yeah, she does show them the video drum of her being, you know, tortured and beaten. So and ma- maybe that, that alone been... is what she, Nikki holds that much of a, 
you know, presence inside of Max that 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 turns him around and makes him want to go almost avenge her death or whatever. But but yeah, I mean, she uh, you, she basically reprograms him, in, in my opinion. So like he was programmed to do one thing. He goes to do that to kill her. She reprograms him and then boom, death to Videodrome, long live the new flesh is like his yeah. new mantra from that point. But yeah, the I didn't get to talk about it. But the uh, once he's escaped that boardroom shooting, I want to talk with you. This is just good James Wood comedy. As he comes out, he shoots out the back alley. He's still holding the gun. He's trying to be sneaky with it. But he walks out into an alleyway. For some reason, these people are just moving doors, just big old wooden doors with glass in them from one side of the alleyway to the other one. So he comes out, he's being all sneaky. He walks down the alleyway and he goes to turn. He's going to go escape down the alleyway. He turns and whoa, almost runs into the guys carrying the door, nods to him, and then turns around, runs away like he was completely accidental that he didn't mean to run into him. But I think he was just so focused on it. So he bumps into the door, looks at him, and then goes away. Like it was like ad lib because he was so obsessed with it. It was just a really, like the second, like the first time I didn't catch it, but the second time I watched it, I was like, that was really funny. Yeah. and well done i don't know if i, I don't know if i even know the scene and it, well I, I was i was thinking to myself what do these doors mean you know like why have people moving doors right there but he does kind of talk about that in the commentary like uh it was cronenberg you know always putting window like this is a window to this this is a window to that type thing and that was you know another yeah, the whole eyes know, oh my, window to the soul type situation right. was like the big thing that he had no idea what he was writing but he still managed to put that message in there like a, okay. yeah, a thousand messages in this movie well, one of the coolest effects i mean we keep talking about that gun but when that gun becomes part of his body i mean yes. that was that might have been my favorite effect of the movie that was beautifully done very hr giger very hr giger geiger however you want to pronounce his name but yeah it just grew mm-hmm. beautifully oh that was a beautiful and, it, and it, it didn't cut away. It showed you the scene. It showed yeah. it move. I'm sure they fast forwarded a little bit, but. Is there any mention of him, of Cronenberg um, knowing Akira, the animated movie Akira? No. There's nothing anywhere about that. I, didn't, I don't fire. think they even came out until, because this is 83. I don't think Akira came out until 88. Akira later? The, 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 the manga was out, sure, but I don't think the movie came out until 1988. Yeah. One thing know, I was going to ask you, know, you guys. Go ahead, Drew. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. I'm sorry. Do, do you know Akira, the animated movie, the famous? Yeah, I do. I, I've seen, I saw it when it first came out a long time ago, but I haven't yeah. seen it since I then. wonder, because it seems like either it, it would have influenced that scene or that scene would have influenced Akira. It just depends on which one came out first. I think these, I think, I think, again, I think a lot of American cinema influences Japan, other countries. And that's being specific, especially because I don't want to go off, but Akira is body horror. Especially, mm-hmm. it is a hundred percent body. Well, as soon as it, as soon as it started happening in video drama, I was like, "This, this is like freaking Akira." Yeah, you know. Yeah, sure Akira was eighty-eight, by the way. Yeah, so I was right. Okay, so this, this might have this might have influenced Akira. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure more than anything, John Carpenter's thing influenced. That, that was body horror. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. one thing I was going to ask you guys, being uh, Hellraiser fans, a lot of stuff in this. Like especially the the sex scene, the way that that was shot, and mm-hmm. um, it reminded me a lot of hell, like some stuff I'd seen Hellraiser and some of the different, um, especially you know sex scenes in Hellraiser and stuff like that. But you know, in in uh, Clive Barker used Cronenberg. He's he's plays that doctor in Nightbreed. Didn't want to talk um, about that. Yeah, 
but anyway, I just I didn't know if, with you guys being Hellraiser and Clive Barker fans, and you just mentioned that about Akira. I, I didn't know if you guys had seen anything about how much Cronenberg influenced Clive Barker. That's yes awesome. and no. I see, but for, for me, what you call it, Cronenberg's sex scene and nudity wasn't gratuitous and it felt natural to the story i you know doing wrong. i love hellraiser but the more i've delved into a lot of clive barker's work it's just overly sexual for no reason yeah it's in his writing for it's, some it, i mean i get it it's, it's his writing style and people tend to enjoy it but just some of the his writing style is just like the point of this scene there's no point of this scene it's just supposed to be sex right i'm just like Okay, to the point, like I, I read one of his, I, I, I didn't finish reading it. I was just like, I can't take this. Because there is one of the, I, I, I won't forget the, just because it was, it literally pulled me out of the story so much. I was like, I can't read this anymore. And it was in Weave World. I was listening to the audiobook of Weave World. And this main bad guy was talking to this main bad girl. And her whole power comes from that she's this uh, virgin evil saint. And so she does, she's, uh, you know, a virgin. And this sleazy ball salesman who's trying to, he's her assistant. They're having a conversation. And he was like, oh, she opened my mind when she showed me the ways of the magic. And then he's, mm. he's giving story. And then out of nowhere, he's like, oh, his member was so hard it hurt. And he rubbed it. And I was like, whoa, what? I don't want, <laughs> I don't care that his dong is so hard that it hurts that he has to rub it. Why? <laughs> what? I get it, sexual frustration and everything, but there's a bunch of other ways. It was just heavy-handed. He was like, oh, yeah, his member was so hard that it hurt when he (laughs) looked at her, and so he rubbed it. I was just like, and it happened a lot, like, throughout that book, talking about, oh, out of nowhere, her nipples were hard. Why were, what? That that serves no purpose in the story other than you just say, hey, she's got boobies and her nipples are hard. It was just (laughs) weird. And it it drew me out so much. It was like, don't get me wrong. I like boobies as much as the next guy. I love them. <laughs> all shapes, all sizes. I like them a bunch. But when I'm watching a, a movie or I'm reading a book, I'm like, there's a time and place for these things. And they're yeah. just like, hey, definitely here you go. Well, the, the, like the, like said, the, 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 like the, the one major sex scene, I guess, if you're going to what, what even gratuitous? No, it was casual, like real casual. Like you'd even see her, like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not upset because like, you didn't even see your tits. Well, I think you saw like a nipple. And then like later on, she's wearing this really skimpy see-through bra and when she like, you know, burns herself with a cigarette. But like it wasn't gratuitous. And right. it felt natural to the scene. That's what I'm talking about. It felt these people had been our casual lovers. And so she was just, but she wasn't like, oh, look at me. I want, you know, it was just casual. Yeah. It felt, uh, it felt good to the scene. Filmed it perfectly. Then uh, they spent two days on that scene alone. They said too. I mean, he you could tell he took his time on it, wanted to do it right, had the right amount of people on the set, you know. You want to make everyone um, feel comfortable and everything. Yeah. Well, one thing I want to make sure we touch on is the music. I love the music in this movie, man. It's like I one of the really things notice it except for that really the, the Takata Fugan thing. It's just that, that like haunted house, like 80s synth type. Well, go back and watch it again, man. It's just, it's That's so. Thing. I, I'm not a big fan of like synth. Like, I, it's one of those weird things. Is like, I like it, 
but nowadays it has to be in everything all these movies like look at me look how cool my synth music is it's back in the eight it's just so overused now well, again this is 80s though you know yeah, this, this is 83 yeah this isn't copying this is this is the 80s yeah, but i just because nowadays everyone trying to pay homage to it i kind of tone out synth i was like oh it's a synth and i just I but it's just, just it, from from the get-go it just sets the tone perfectly and you just feel uncomfortable and then creeped out and scared at the same time and um one of my i'm the biggest things to me are, are story and um and and if, if it has a decent story and it has awesome music i'll watch it i'm i'm there uh but the composer was howard short i don't know how much you guys are familiar with him but you know he no. won oscars for the lord of the rings stuff oh He's snap done, He's done every single one of Cronenberg's movies except for The Dead Zone. He's done, he did seven, David Fincher's seven. He did The Game. He did Silence of the Lambs. Didn't even get nominated for Silence of the Lambs, but whenever I think of Silence of the Lambs, I can hear that music in my head. When, he did Dogma, which is a- uh, <laughs> Really? Dogma? Yeah, wow. he did yeah, Dogma. But this guy, man, he's, uh, in my opinion, he Howard Shore should be on the Mount Rushmore of composers. He's done, I mean, and he did everything from Big and Mrs. Doubtfire to Lord of the Rings to every single David Cronenberg movie. So, um, I mean, he's, he's no done a bunch Hans of Scorsese Zimmerman. stuff. <laughs> he's no Hans Zimmer. <laughs> if I want to be a Rudy Tootie, boy, Hans Zimmer makes great. I don't even. I don't. Dan, not, Danny Elfman. Okay, Danny Elfman. I noticed. I know when Danny Elfman's doing something. Danny Elfman or Bear McQuarrie of late. Danny Elfman's <laughs> definitely one of my favorite of all time. But but like. Uh, I, a lot of times, I I really don't notice music. I don't. Ha- it has a lot to do with wow. the fact I'm shocked. That I, I don't have that. the ear for it. Like I can notice subtle things in movies and camera angles. When it comes to music, it's just but for me. I I, I, I have more. I do have more of an ear for music for Blake, but I really didn't. Um, I was uh, there's two different movies. One movie I was disappointed in myself uh, watching um, Baby Driver because then oh, if yeah. you see, the entirety of baby driver is filmed and all the scene every, all the entire movie is done to the beat beat of the music apparently mm-hmm. i just wasn't i didn't much care for most of the songs in that well, I don't even, well yeah maybe might have been part of it. i just i just i wasn't like putting it together i'm watching it i'm like am i retarded like I, i'm not like i i knew the premise of the style but why he made this movie the way he made this movie and i'm just like i just wasn't it wasn't clicking i need to watch it again i guess but something that one that did jump out to me we'll probably mention it a couple of times is uh joker if you oh, watch yeah. joker has a phenomenal mm. phenomenal score to joker it's the yeah, only time the music has ever jumped out jump out to me really in a movie like just flat out besides people doing drops you know we, we talk about drops in movies i think already needle just, drops just yeah. re- repeated licensed music i get you know i think easy a had a bunch of that yeah you're but, gonna uh, hear me talk about music a lot in these podcasts. That's fine, go for it. I guess I the, it's not something I notice a lot of the time, frankly. The next movie that we do is gonna be big on music with me. You guys said you don't really care for music. I'm shocked yeah. to hear that, to be honest. It's not that, not that. It, just, that it doesn't it doesn't do anything for me. I'm just because some like you hear composers say, Oh, my my music made the movie. I'm just like, You there's music in the movie? I don't whatever man i don't care like i just don't hear the obvious things like the the halloween stuff yeah watch watch some of your favorite scenes ever 
with the music and then watch it without the music and then tell me that music doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I, mean, I get that it matters, but I just, it's so, it's, it's like sitting in just sitting in the, you know, the movies that we've made sitting in the editing room, whenever we're putting it together and then you go back in and there's music laid over it. And it's like, Oh my God, it's freaking awesome. Now it's a know? real movie. Yeah. I- all right, all right, let's let's reel yeah. it back in and get back to. Uh, yeah, sorry, we <laughs> we want to talk about the ending or where, where yeah, well, the last go? thing I want to talk about is you we you got to it, but I want to talk about some other stuff first. Is the one like the big big final scene because you find out once he gets this. Actually, it's weird because they don't. T- I only found out from watching the uh, the commentaries and behind the scenes, but when he gets his his video drum gun, the his the gun that grows metal tendrils and fuses with his hand that comes and goes throughout the movie depending on when he needs it he just kind of pulls it and it, it regrows i guess don't really show you because again hallucinations you're not sure but when he has his confrontate his final confrontation with convex and you find out that it's a grotesque scene and he pop 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 pops him with this gun but they tell you in the special features that the gun shoots cancer, but they don't talk about that in the movie at all. But that's what causes this grotesque scene with Barry Convex is it shoots rapidly growing cancer is literally what the ammo in that gun, which is weird because <laughs> he doesn't have the gun is a normal gun when he kills those executives. But when he kills Convex, he's long lived the new flesh and he's grown right. the gun and it's fused with him at that point. Huh? But they say the reason that it, the Convex, does the scene that you want to talk about that I want to talk about too, the, spe- the practical effects on it are awesome. It's because it shot rapidly growing cancer at him, which is, I was like, that's a weird thing to mention, but whatever. But this convex scene is amazing because it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's literally a convention. It's like an eyewear convention. There's tables all around and there's a crew of like four, six people on stage doing a little number and convex comes out a little, Snapping the fingers and hey everybody, it's uh, this is this is realistic. <laughs> where an eyewear company would have this this much going on, especially in the eighties and how big of a sleazeball businessman he was. Oh yeah, for sure he <laughs> spent money because that dance was choreographed like a mofo. And you know he's James Woods being all you know hiding himself and this guy he's like yeah we do this he's exp- you know, all this great stuff and pff, James Woods just turns around and goes oh yeah boom 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 just starts blasting him and then he hits the he that's when he, he grabs the microphone and starts screaming you know long live the new flesh down with videodrome long live the he yeah, starts because everybody in there will know exactly what that means you exa- know exactly what videodrome is but the scene uh, uh was was amazing they had they had his plaster cast body and based off the the behind the scenes is they literally took everybody on set all the everyone who was involved in makeup practical or special effects i think i think this is about 20 to 25 of them each had their own uh how do you they call it a a flesh mitten is literally what they called it Mm -hmm. so they all had these huge like dental dam all the way up to their shoulders and they got underneath the stage and they're like all right we're gonna we're gonna do this and they just start forcing their hands through this mm-hmm. thick bloody corpse of a plaster and they just every like, some guy got the face some guy got the leg and they were just reaching their hands with these flesh mittens on and just stretching their fingers and 
it was so disgusting looking and so awesome looking. You even part right talking mm-hmm. about Drew. Like it was just dope. And they talked about the funny thing is because they said they filmed that scene at like two o'clock in the morning. They filmed that scene and everybody went home, but no one had anywhere to go home to. They only had the hotel that was down the street because all this was shot. Actually, I think they said it was shot on site in Ontario. They just picked different areas to shoot. And so at two o'clock in the morning, 20 dudes come walking through the lobby caked in fake blood. Some of them were shirtless. Some of them didn't want to get their clothes dirty. So just walking other ones just threw their jacket or shirt over. They're like, whatever, I'll wash it later. Or this is the shirt I wear on this day. Cause it, it's so filthy. And they're like, we, you've never seen something get so quiet. <laughs> then you walk. I mean, he's like, it was 2am. There weren't a lot of people there, but I mean, there were still enough people in there that it was, when we walked in, it was quiet. <laughs> the concierge and everything was like, uh, can we help you? I was like, no, no, we got to, we're going to just go into our rooms. Y'all have a good night. But they were caked head to toe and just blood and fake guts. That's the, that's when you wanted, you were talking about earlier. Oh yeah. I mean that again, that the, the gun and that, those are the two best. And it, it just reminded me so much of uh, the thing, just the way, you know, every time that it burst out of their bodies and the thing, and the, and whole, the, the, way the they, whole, the whole, like they had the whole thing was like shaking uh-huh. as, as they were coming through. Yeah. It was dope. Yeah. And then we kind of get to the ending, right? Yeah. From there, he, yeah, he goes uh, to the, the port. Is that, is that where you're getting that? Yeah. Cause they did shoot three separate endings for this movie because, like I said earlier, it wasn't done. The movie wasn't done. First, they had this really cute, heartfelt one that was kind of a happy ending where well actually hold on let me they do this weird freaky deaky thing where they even talk about they filmed it and they made prostheses where it literally says that um nikki brand and max rind grow extra sexual organs on their hands and other body parts and just have a self orgy with one another they filmed it and made the prosthesis and they're just like prosthetics yeah prostheses yeah they literally <laughs> made these <laughs> prosthetics right I get is prosthetics <laughs> or prostheses? Prostheses? I'm not sure. Making make a word up? No, I, I think I'm. It's the Latin plural, because prosthetics, a prosthetic, or prosthetics has an s. Because you would say cactus, cacti, octopus would be multiple would be octopi. So prosthesis. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I don't know if I'm. Maybe I'm making up a word. I don't know. Write in and tell me if I'm stupid or not. But oh, anyway, and they Let's filmed it, and they're like. It was weird. We don't like that. So they, they cut all that and then turned it into a... Then they basically, we said earlier, spoiler alert, the movie all builds up to this massive scene of James Woods alone in a tugboat. And the he, you know last thing he says is long live the new flesh. And it makes you think he's going to elevate himself, that his bodily shell is holding him back. And so he pulls out that cancer gun square to the temple and pop pop now originally the movie didn't end there the original ending besides the the finger orgy with prosthetics and prostheses (laughs) uh had him waking up in the in the video drum room and he's with nikki and he gets to torture her and they get to have kind of a a happy ending and david cronenberg was like ah I don't like that. He's like, because me as a, he's he's a, a not a devout, but he's a vocal atheist. Atheist, yeah. 
And he was like, that makes it sound like that makes it seem like I believe in an afterlife that it gets to be right. happy. He's like, I don't like, I don't like that. I don't like people. Well, I don't, he's like, I don't like the fact that people would think I'm a hypocrite. He's like, and he's like, frankly, this character doesn't deserve a happy ending. This movie's not that type of movie. So they end up cutting that the, you know, the quote unquote happy ending with him, you know, torturing her to all the, and the it literally long live the new flesh pop pop to the face cue credits i just thought there was a lot of well because you, you forget he's talking to the chick on the tv he is yeah he, there's a like, look like, she's promising but, but all just talking and talking and talking and he's talking back it i thought there was more movie coming after this yeah i thought that was building up to like the next part of the movie and then it ended the credits i was like that's, that's part of what I said, was like the credits started and i was like where's the Where's the rest is there going to be a mid credit scene? Or is there going to be a post? Where's the rest of the movie? Because <laughs> right as the movie is starting to get really bonkers and crazy, it's, it's done. It ends. Yeah. And it, you know, it was like, I'm not going to lie. The first time, going through the first time, I was I was like, ooh, oh, I don't know. how. I guess it's cool. Special effects are dope. but this, uh. Apparently that that ending was James Wood's idea, right? Where he shoots yes. himself. Yeah. I did, I did find that out later. I thought that was pretty dope. Yeah. He was like, why don't we just do this? And have it in there. And they're like, let's see. Let, let's shoot it and find out. I'd like to know if uh, James Wood knows what's going on in the movie. I don't think he does. Because it, 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 younger James Woods, he's like, this is the most fantastical, crazy script that I've ever read. And most people who I've, who I've shared it with have said the same thing. And they would love to be involved with it. But uh, like, he has his own idea about what he thinks is going on. But I don't think he... He's like, yes, yeah, it's, it's Max Friend's journey from being, you know, from starting out normal and then being pulled into these dark, deep secrets and desires. But I'm not sure he knows, Frank. I'm not sure. Everyone says they don't know and he didn't have any plans. And I don't think he thinks he does, but I think it's, it's to the point now where he likes saying that he didn't have a plan. But there's a lot of things. Because he even mentions the whole eyes of the window to the soul are... Mm-hmm. A, it's a big uh, piece to the whole movie because like even when he's that, that the big musical number at the at the glasses thing mm-hmm. there are these planes of glass that are in the shape of eyeglasses that are literally windows to the soul because they're playing yeah. soul music it was real heavy-handed but again and that's like like we talked about those doors earlier it's like he planted stuff like that throughout one thing I will mention at the end, did you, on that commentary, did you catch where the the one I listened to was uh, by that uh, Tim Lucas, that film critic that basically mm-hmm. he spent that time on the set. Um, I didn't it was watch awesome. that one. It, it, that um, was the one that was specifically Cronenberg and uh, what's his name? Scott Irwin, the, the oh, DLP. Yeah. And I watched bits and pieces of the James Wood one, but it was just them kind of, it was cool them having fun, but I was just kind of like, <laughs> yeah uh well anyway he, he he talks about um he thinks uh everything comes full circle like whenever he kills himself on the tv and then he wakes up at the very beginning of the movie where, where he wakes up to his assistant leaving that video thing yeah that video diary for him uh for the day but it's just like one loop a circle oh it's completely it's cyclical and it, yeah. it just keeps restarting. It's uh-huh. like watching, kind of like watching a movie. You've rewind it and started over. It's very mm-hmm. videotaping in that way. I can see that. Yeah. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty cool take that he, he says that on the commentary. But um, 
Who knows All if right. that's really what was meant to happen or not? And that's the beauty of it. Yep. Who knows? <laughs> um, did, do you have anything you want to touch base on? Because I have like. Well, I was going to ask, cause I, I don't know if you said actually what you how you feel about the actual ending itself. Yeah. I liked it. I like the the whole tone of the movie and it fit. I think it fits it perfectly. I think it um, if they would have done one of those other endings that we talked about, like the happier it would it wouldn't have fit. It was, so I just I loved the it just completely his the way his character just completely delved you know just downward downward spiral the whole time and um, how he ended up I I thought it was a perfect ending to that character. It's funny that uh doing the commentary that I watched David Cronenberg he's like oh yeah now we get to the end of the movie where James Gunn's about uh, James Gunn's James Woods is about to you know end his life he's like. He's like, I find it odd that a uh, a lot of my main characters end with this exact same moment. Is there something wrong with me? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> like, So apparently a lot of his characters end up killing themselves or sacrificing themselves in one way or another to, to do some stuff. And it's just kind of funny. I want to like definitely see more of his work. Yep. What about you? Did you like the ending? Yeah. Like I said, having knowing the other choices this is the best of the choice i don't mind a bleak ending like things are too not everything ends the world's not a happy place it doesn't always end happy it's okay to have a bleak sad ending um the i only have one final thought and it's another practical effect thing uh do you have anything else steve no i i was gonna whenever we do our final thoughts on the actual movie i have some stuff but go ahead uh, the, the one last practical effect which leads to a single extra tidbit was in the final scene when they explode the TV before he, he pops his brains out. They explode that TV. You know, see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they explode. They, it's funny because they, 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 they came up with that idea on just kind of randomly. Like, we should blow the screen up. And they're like, how do we do that? We're like we got some air cannons. What should we fill the screen with? And they're like, I don't know, man, what? And they're like, and one of the guys who was a Toronto native, he's like, oh, two blocks from here, there's literally a butcher shop. And he's like, he's like, give me an hour. And they're like, okay, you got an hour. So he runs down to this butcher shop. He's like, look, give me all your pig brains, pig guts, sheep guts, sheep. Give me all the stuff you're not going to use. And they're like, that's weird, but uh, okay. And he haggled them down and got a good deal for his guts. <laughs> so he gets these guts back he, and they, they you're like oh god it really smells so bad because they're real rotting guts and they're like oh it smells so terrible like, right. let's, let's shoot this this is disgusting but this is going to be amazing so they stuff they, they stuff the TV and they're like yeah, yeah yeah hit the button nothing happened they, they didn't have the air valves or whatever turned up the only <laughs> thing that happened was a single gut a single part of the gut <laughs> flew out and smacked one of the cameras and broke the camera. <laughs> and so they're like, okay, they're like, we're going to try one more time, but we're not doing this again. And so the guy responsible was like, okay, he, without telling anybody, he turned all the air, air valves to max, all the air valves to max. And so when the movie, when they, the scene you get is that one, it just, everything just explodes. It's all of, real gut. It's all real sheep, big gut. And, 
because you know they did it goes to say oh because rick baker talked about this every single one of their practical effects he's like uh if it wasn't the first shot it was the second one because they didn't have time to reset some of the stuff like the yeah. the convex thing first try that they filmed the first scene and just cut together the best parts of the whole the whole recording of it because they said they, they just didn't have time or budget to reset these practical effects so they had to make right. them look great the first time that also may have been why he was such a perfectionist with that tv making him redo that tv so many times but it because they wanted it to be done right mm-hmm. but that's the that's kind of the last thing i really have to talk about um what about you steve yeah i, I mean every single one of those effects that I think you, that's what you were most excited about was just talking oh, about the effects of this movie. And I, I love an eighties practical effect. Yeah. It, I just, I wish they, they were still like that to this day. I mean, you know, CGI stuff can be cool sometimes, but nothing beats this stuff. Yeah. Cause for me, uh, more recent, one of the best two things practically effects is absolutely loved the void. Have you seen that? Yeah, I have. I it, loved the void. The and movie was okay, but the I mean the story was whatever, but the effects were great. I still stand by the movie because it doesn't. Well, maybe that'll be something we talk about. But I love the void. Another one is Looper. Dude, was I love Looper. Ninety percent of that, actually, no, I think more. I think yeah, ninety percent of that. Even movie. the fl- even the flying motorbikes were practical. Yeah, they just took the wheels off and stuck it on a green saddle, a green screen saddle, it and was it was attached to a truck. They yeah, drove the truck back and forth. Exactly. Yeah. And all the the big final scene with the the what is it the rainmaker flips out and lifts all these people and they're, they're all just rigged, and they they, they had them rigged and di- they they said they rigged them different parts some on the waist some somewhere up under the arms so they had different flying up effect but yeah, yeah. it was all practical and, and it said it was yeah. because because they did it practical it was so much cheaper to make than they they tried to use CGI and it kept them under their budget but yeah practical over like. The best is when they're blended together perfectly and you can't tell. Yeah. Like I like seeing monster movies or kind of like werewolf movies where people, they have the, the werewolf leg, like a kind of like a, like a cast of it, but then you have the normal person's leg with green screen so they can walk normally, but you have, so you just edit out there. I like when they're blended together perfectly. The hybrid. Mm-hmm. The werepire. So, Okay. From the first moment, opening scene of the movie, I mean, you just feel, in my opinion, uncomfortable and icky. The sloppy apartment, those gritty photos of the, you know, that he's looking out of the um, samurai dreams. Oh, yeah. Um, he's eating pizza while he's looking at the photos. He gets the pizza sauce in the photo and just wipes the photo on his robe. You know, who knows last time he watched that robe? And who knows? Um, he dips the pizza crust. He makes that cappuccino and dips the pizza crust in that cappuccino and eats it. And you just feel uncomfortable just from the opening scene of that movie. And it just stays that way. And most, if you'd tell me, if you'd say that to me, I would be like, eh, I don't want to watch that movie. But this movie, it just, it goes against like all the conventional wisdom, you know, that I've ever had of what makes me like a movie, what makes me not like a movie, but everything that I would think I wouldn't like about this movie, I like. And I, I completely credit that to Cronenberg and 
the way he handled it and just all, I mean, he just has that same tone with all of his movies. I, I really am a fan of Cronenberg and the tone he has in his movies. And I mean, you know, the fly, just all those movies, they just kind of feel the same way. Um, they're kind of icky and gross. And, but at the same time, you're just drawn to it, you know, but they're um, also real. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, again, I mean, the, the characters, I, I mean, James Wood's character, Max, is not, you know, a likable guy by any means. And but I still I'm drawn to him. I'm, I, I don't know if I just want to know what he's going to do. But again, it, it goes against my conventional wisdom of like, you know, what what I like in that and I don't like it. It's just uh, every single thing about this movie, you just constantly feel uncomfortable in me anyways i just felt like i constantly wanted to take a shower you know in this movie and but i i did at the same time i didn't want to leave it i wanted to watch it and it is a movie that i'll have playing i mean i've told you i've probably seen this movie bits and pieces hundreds of times just because it's fun to watch but again 100 percent of this goes to, to cronenberg he 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 knows how to handle it he knew how to cast this movie those characters the actors that played them were perfect so I'm giving this thing four video cassettes out of five. Four, uh, I'll say four Betamax out of five. You finally broke your yeah. Three, I broke your three. Three. Broke three. It, it, it was sleazy. You're supposed to. You're not supposed to like Max. I don't think, but he's actually a, again. It goes to if, if someone else had played him, he he could have been sleaze ball, sleaze tastic, and just gross. And you wouldn't have liked him, but you do end up actually liking the character because he's kind of funny and silly and weird and all, like you said, all this gross stuff. And the majority of the film, especially outside looking in, a lot of the, well, we know because there's another part early on, it also goes to show the 80s where he first goes to the office and he talks to his assistant and he's saying hey to everybody. And they're like, oh, hey, Max. He walks mm-hmm. by just some random girl and just slaps her on the ass and she smiles at him and goes, oh, Max. And he's like, hey, right. girl. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that is horrible. <laughs> that is absolutely, like, he's just sleazy. He just slapped her on the ass and she was just like, <laughs> Max. But again, 80s, like, that right. was, you know, and that's how it was, I guess. I'll never know. But my, I'm not gonna lie. The, my first watching of this movie, I was like, I think this is a two. As much as I enjoy the fly and the practical effects, I was like, I, I what happened in this movie? It was so off the wall. And I guess I think I went in with heightened expectations. I think that was more on me. And then having watched it again, I've watched it like three times now. I've watched the original one, and then the commentaries and other stuff. It's not a four. I don't think it's a fly. I tell people to watch this movie, but if I have to pick a Cronenberg, I'm going to tell people to watch The Fly instead because that's just a more cohesive movie. It's not a four. It's not a two. Uh, <laughs> I've said that. So I'm probably going to give it, not probably, I'm going to give it three. It's going to be three. Um, It's going to be three cigars put out on my tit <laughs> out of five. <laughs> Because this movie was a little painful to get through the first time. I'm not gonna lie, because I, I just I had what it wasn't the movie's fault. It was 100 user error. I had overhyped it in my head. Well, it does come with you did you did buy the Criterion Collection. Yeah, I, I, it, the work. version I have is a Criterion Collection. I was like, oh dang, Criterion Collection. They they hold some elevation in their stuff. And then like you said, like when the ending happened, I was like, oh, 
that's it. There's not more after this. That's the ending. And I, I appreciate the movie much more now. Multiple, I, I from the get go, I love the practical effects. Practical effects were great. And the more I watched it, the more I became endeared with the again the random comedy moments. I didn't I didn't catch the first time I watched it, but I caught right. it on the second and third time. So it, it again, like you said, that's why I became a cult classic. People didn't like everyone who watched it for one the first one and done are like. That's a horrible movie. I would never watch that again. But you watch it a second time, you catch these smaller hints and stuff. And I told you guys at the beginning of this, this would be one of the hardest ones for me. I, I, I wonder what, how many stars I would have given it after the first time I watched it ever. You know what I'm saying? Because me, I, what... I, was, I was ready to give it a two. I was like, what? But because I, I, it's a self-imposed rule that no matter what, I try to watch the movie twice no matter what but then because this movie had a bunch of commentaries and a bunch of special features about the practical effects and so i ended up watching it about three times 3.1 times i started to watch it a fourth one that was entirely james woods and debbie harry's commentary but i was just Mm kind of like i don't want to watch this movie four times in a week Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i was just like three and done i'm okay with it yeah uh, you mentioned like the the fly being your go-to cronenberg which is I mean, a lot of people know that one. Do you have a go-to Cronenberg for yourself, Steve, or is, is it Videodrome, or you got something else you like more of his? Well, I mean, in my opinion, Videodrome is the movie that made Cronenberg Cronenberg. Um, but uh, obviously, you know, since then, he's had all these other ones, like we talked about, The Fly, Dead Ringers, um, not, not even to mention the what he turned into with uh, – history of violence and Eastern promises. And I'm excited to see what he does with the other one that you were talking about that he's going to remake crimes Um, of the future. Yeah. So, I mean, Videodrome it's, it's just, it's the epitome in my opinion of Cronenberg, there would be no fly, you know, without, without Videodrome. It's every, everything that you see in the fly, like those effects and things like that. And in that tone, it's just, it's the exact same stuff. It's Videodrome like evolved in my opinion. But but again, it, that's that's what I would go back to. But um, if you guys have to see Dead Ringers, you need to watch some of these other ones. I, I know you said you didn't watch some of his other stuff, but he's a, he truly him. is a genius filmmaker. Go ahead. I, I would say I really enjoy Scanners. Scanners is to, to one of my favorite, and that's like the first five minutes of that movie. But one of my favorite practical effects of all time <laughs> right. is, that, is that that frozen and turkey exploding. exploding. Right, I love it. Yeah. But yeah. And Scanner says again, I think you talked about it. No, you said Jeremy Irons. Never mind. But I was thinking Michael, Michael Ironside. Ironside is in yeah. Scanners. Michael Ironside's a fantastic actor. One of the best character actors of all time. No doubt about that. What's our next uh what's our next thing? <laughs> all right. So for the next one, I'm going a little bit old school, just like you did on this one. I'm trying to say this without giving away too much that I've obviously already seen it. Um, don't want to, you know, ruin anything there about my opinion on it. You try not to say it's a fantastic movie that I exactly right. like, I don't want to call it like this or that, or, uh, so I'll just straight up say the, the title of it is heat. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that 1995 directed by Michael Mann. That's a uh, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, De Niro and Pacino. That's the uh, cops, right? De Niro is a thief and uh, Pacino's a cop. Okay, we're doing Heat, 1995's Heat with Pacino and De Niro. What do you think about that? Have you guys, have you seen that? 
And I'll tell you right, I probably wouldn't normally. Because, I mean, cool, I get near and Pacino. But I got to be one of the only people in the world that I I hate Scarface. I'll say it. And I've watched. I've, it's not like. Well, this ooh, is no Scarface. So I know. But I just mean, that. like, I I don't want to say I have a disdain for Pacino. Because he's been overhyped my entire life because of Scarface. And I finally, I finally watched Scarface. I put it off for years. I will say this is after Sin of a Woman, Pacino, where he was the exact same way over actor uh, I mean, every single movie after, in my opinion, after Sin of a Woman. So that I'll, I'll say that, you know, that if, if you don't like Pacino, then uh, hopefully you'll like him a little bit better than this. But it is after Sin of a Woman. So he does kind of have that overacting style to himself. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm aware. All right, since we're done there with Steve's pick for the week, I feel like I should say there's a third. I'm the third voice people keep hearing in the podcast. I don't do myself in the intro. I try not to talk too much, but movies are too exciting. Yes, this is Drew, this is Drew Blake's brother. I produce and edit, and uh, me and Blake have another podcast about uh, video games, which I'll I'll link in these show notes. Uh, other than that, we I'll use this part to thank. Uh, Greg Bennett for the awesome intro music we got for our podcast. Of course, he was great. Knocked it out, knocked it out of the park. And then we'll thank uh, Devious Pixel for the cool title art we have. We really enjoy that. Me and Blake have been using Devious Pixel for almost two years now for various other, uh, lots of art for our, our other podcast. Also, if you want to keep uh, the best way to keep track of what's going on here or anything like that, I try to do w- weekly or midweek reminders of the movies. So people, they, we do prefer people watch the movies before listening, unless you don't care about spoilers. People were weird about spoilers, but you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And I, I, I do the post on there. I mean, Blake and Steve could post if they wanted to. It don't matter to me that I do post on there just about the movies or any other random cool. I posted something about that thing. Blake shared a thing about dogs wagging their tails in movies i thought thought was really awesome yeah just i don't know if you (laughs) saw that steve Uh, yeah they cgi dogs tails so they're not wagging their tails all the time so happy that was movie related i saw the internet i was (laughs) like man i need need to share that to our movie podcast page so i got stuff like that going on but mostly it's about when we like when we record and when it's coming out and stuff like that it's on facebook and twitter and uh, like i said me and blake have our other podcast uh lock stock and two smoky controllers it's pretty much the people say the sister thing to this that's the brother podcast you know they're kind of same people were doing it so yeah. and then uh, the last thing i'll always want to keep promoting is uh blake has published a short story maybe a few months ago now yeah it's like back in like march i think yeah right. uh, a short story called they come this night which you can find uh on amazon you just search that name uh or i'll have a link for that in the show notes and i think that's all I have to mention on this end. And, and for me, I just want to thank everybody for listening because we're, we're having a pretty good time. I think the guys will agree we're having a pretty good time making this podcast. Oh, yeah. Yep. It's been great. Appreciate you guys letting me do it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll leave everybody with this as always. Uh, everybody get out there. Make sure you see enough movies because all of life's riddles are answered in the movies. I want to wish everybody a good evening and good night. Someone to care for, to be there for. I have James Woods. Someone to do for, 
Model through for you. Have James Woods. Someone to share joy or despair with, whichever betides you. Life becomes a chore, unless you're living for. Someone to tend to, be a friend to, I have James Woods. Someone to strive for, do or die for, you have James Woods. It's true, we too have a likewise point of view. Cause James Woods has you, and I have James Woods too.